Hey everyone, welcome to Mills of the Mamrack. I'm Captain Chris here with Dandy Daddy. And today we welcome back our good friend, excellent fisherman, ninja fisherman, Captain Jay Shields. How you doing, bud? Hey guys, what's happening? What's happening, Jay? Glad to be back, boys. Yeah, good to see you again, man. How's your winter been going so far? Uh, it's setting in. The depression's starting to get there a little bit. It's like winter, you know what I mean? It's getting it's that good. time. Yeah. You know, we get Christmas coming up. We're going to get a few fishing gifts coming through the wire. And then uh, then the big suck for me is really like January to March. Yeah. You know, that's a tough time. That is, well, you're going to be on the hard water this year with Uncle John, right? Oh, yeah. Johnny V wanted to get hard into ice fishing this year. So, you know, he's probably not going to listen to this <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're sitting here with this new sled a bunch of traps some ice fishing rods and you know just kind of do some research i never really do any ice fishing it's more like ice drinking so you know i'm excited to get them out there yep hopefully go travel around we're gonna go to your father's place hopefully yeah definitely we can get up in maine and get on the yeah there's a lot of snow up there i will you got to go through probably about three feet of snow before you get through the ice but oh man johnny he's not gonna like that yeah. at all <laughs> <laughs> at all do you ice fish at all jay i used to for a little while yeah i mean the i i like it at first ice because you get a shot of catching like really big largemouth right when the ice first sets up yeah uh and i like catching trout through the ice as well it's actually really fast fishing believe it or not i don't think i ever trout. got a trout ice fishing before yeah so it was probably i want to say like 11 years ago um pat brown who used to work at first light and is i've known him since i was a little kid uh his brother uh, pat was a shore guide and an excellent fisherman does a lot of cold water fishing and things like that and he does uh, kayak tournaments now for largemouth bass um anyway his brother lived out in colorado and his brother figured out a way to catch a lot of trout through the ice really really efficiently and really quickly and told us what it entailed and um i think two or three days after finding that out pat dragged myself and a couple other guys out and it was absolutely ridiculous fishing i think we got 35 or 40 fish you know in a couple hours and the flags just oh, popping awesome. popping everywhere no shit yeah nice. so, so you were using tip-ups okay yeah using tip-ups uh jig rods too but uh, you know tip-ups for sure i'll tell you guys after I'm, it's not mine to give away so no nope. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you guys what i'm doing after though, <laughs> for sure. move i like that yeah for sure yeah. i know and speaking of it being the holidays boys I have holiday presents for you. What do oh, we got? Right. For, what do we have here? Uh, well, that is a, a little something for congratulations for one year of Miles and the Merrimack, and you know for being good buddies and and uh, just happy to see you guys succeed. So that is. Oh, these are sexy, Jay. Thank you, buddy. So those are custom swim baits that are made in Northern California uh, by a company by the name of Shasta Bass Baits, Lake Shasta out there, and they are custom poured with all kinds of different levels. And that is his ghost trout pattern. So it's an eight-inch swim bait. Look at those colors, dude. Yeah, I know. This is quality stuff here. Yeah, it's poured in all different. Uh, so it's an eight-inch swim bait that's poured in all different colors. And that one is a, like I said, a ghost trout. It's a semi-translucent with a lavender uh, lateral line stripe like a rainbow trout has, and it throws shades of pink, lavender, green, all sort of different things. So that guy pours those uh, one off at a time, handmade, and uh, they're on the tournament bass trail. The professional bass guys uh, buy stuff from this guy, um, usually a fairly long lead time on his stuff. And um, I figured you guys might be able to find a little use for them. Dude, the fish get on herring and things like this that. This is a herring. Oh, Christmas killer. came early. Yeah, clean water. So this is, I have one that I brought from home that I got for myself. Oh, nice. That's rigged on a 12-odd owner beast uh, to give you guys an, an idea of, of how it would set and sit in the water. I think that 12-odd might be a size too big. Maybe the 10-odd might be the right hook for it, but... It gives you an idea of, of how it's weighted and how it's rigged. Yeah, so guys, you know, you guys can't see it, but he's got one of those uh, spring lock. Oops, sorry. He's got one of those uh, spring lock owner beast hooks with the uh, with a little weight on the bottom there, 
Uh, how much weight is that? It's about a quarter ounce. Uh, that is actually three eighths. Three eighths. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Wow, that's a sexy bait, Jay. I think uh, when we had Craig Simes on here, he was talking about uh, sh uh, the shots debates, if I remember correctly. He brought something like this out of my boat, but I don't think it looked this good. This thing is unbelievable, Jay. The color patterns he comes up with are absolutely out of this world. I like the headway. Like, you can chuck this thing, too, I bet. For sure, and it'll stay down on a, on a fairly faster swim. And I know you guys deal with a lot of current, so you probably want a you know, good amount of weight on it so it stays low. Oh, this is awesome. So is this going to be like a slightly subsurface type of thing? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, subsurface. Uh, if, you know, if you don't have a lot of moving water, you can fish it a little deeper yeah I'd, I'd fish that in shallow you know the flats situations like that where you can you know at a good moderate moderate fast retrieve it'd clip along and obviously with it being rigged like that you're not too worried about getting hung up if anything it's just going to tick a rock on the lead and keep moving i mean this is great too because like early in the season especially last year um we were getting right tight into the uh the grass banks mm. and herring getting pushed right into the um yeah. right into all the uh the cattails right exactly yeah and like literally if you were two feet off of it you were out of the strike zone so we had to come up and try to cast parallel and work it along that shoreline as much as possible you couldn't perpendicularly cast right. to it and um you know you you get some trash on your hook and things like that i mean the poppers were the big ones um some of the nomad stuff the uh the shikaki is that what it's called the stick bait that one was pretty good in shakira. that situation. shakira yeah that, no not the shakira shikari shikari shikari, shikari. Yeah. <laughs> i wish oh, it was I shakira on my boat <laughs> But you know, this is that's that size, that's that color. This thing's incredible, Jay. Thank you very much. No, of yeah, course, awesome, man. Absolutely. Yeah, it's deadly. I'm sure that I'll probably end up ordering 50 more of them. Yeah, no <laughs> shit. And now I'm For wishing sure. I returned half the stuff. I ended up getting like the 3,000 sluggos I have in my basement right <laughs> no, now. Those will work great, man. I those love are... the owner beast hooks, though. The design is just so awesome. Even when you throw in like nine inch sluggos or something, too, it's like such a it's, it's such a great hook to throw on there. That's yeah. Good. When you don't want like a weighted jig head, it's a totally different. Yeah, different different presentation you yeah. get that nice vertical layout i mean horizontal layout excuse me you know yeah. where the jig where it's dropping down you know this you're going to kind of get a little more subsurface and um just get that little twitch to it you know yeah. a little more casting distance and just get down a little bit deeper you can fit i fish it probably a little bit faster than i do with a straight unweighted you know and uh cool yeah cool and as you guys can see by looking at this i mean this is tapered almost like a large spook would be right like a wooden spook so you have it's the, the head on it's a real meatball you yeah. know it's a very th very thick wide head and it tapers into a thin tail so you're going to have a lot of water getting pushed and thrown by that wide head and you're going to have a lot of turbidity behind it that's going to move the tail so the tail will have a pretty good wag on it it's not going to be too tight of a wag it's going to be you know pretty wide on it it looks like a sperm a sperm with like a little paddle tail <laughs> yes, on it. It does. that's like ideal right <laughs> Yeah. the shape <laughs> yes it does so we've been we've been recording for five minutes and we're already talking about sperm this is good <laughs> that's probably a record of how long we were able to laugh <laughs> it's still a lot better than what we were talking about choice before of we words yeah, yeah. No <laughs> <laughs> so Dre, you're funny because you brought this and i know when uh we reached out we were talking about coming out here we were coming up you wanted to specifically talk about some things and uh soft plastics and i know you are the man when it comes to soft plastics i've learned a lot of different kinds from you I've learned how to fish them in different situations, uh, just through our conversations and fishing together. And, um, you know, I think there's anybody who's listening, uh, when it comes to lure fishing, artificial stuff, you're one of the guys, you're one of the dudes because you, you understand the situation. You've fished them all before. You, you're a big experimenter. You take notice of things. And, um, you know, you're always outside the box, which I always appreciate. You Thanks, know, man. it's really cool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you said you want a few things that you want to whip up there. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about soft plastics, man. Let's, let's, um, before we stop, 
before we talk about soft plastics, let's just establish that they're fishing lures, right? Correct. So what is a fishing lure? A fishing lure is a surface against which water pressure moves against that forces that thing to react. Mm -hmm. Think of it as a kite in the wind, right? If you look at a, a lip, a lipped plug, right? A lipped plug is going to dig... A lift plug is going to dig and swim uh, because of the fact that water is moving across that lip and it's creating, it's one, pulling it down, and two, creating uh, disturbed water that's going to force it to wiggle back and forth and, and seek out, right? So that's first, a lure is a surface that interacts with the water. Secondly, what are your considerations? Fall rate and buoyancy. Okay, so you have floating lures, you have neutrally balanced lures, you have sinking lures, and obviously in that category of sinking, you have, you know, anything from a super slow sink to you know a jig that's going to drop, you know, like a stone or faster than a stone. Uh, and then from there, you have how it's balanced, and then you have its properties as to, you know, does it move in a tight manner, does it move in a loose manner, etc. With all those considered, now let's talk about soft plastics because those are the first principles that establish what a lure is, right? Mm -hmm. So the history of soft plastics is an interesting thing. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with the cream lures, but those actually started in the 1940s. Okay. And they were, these were originally made in Ohio, and they were designed to look like a nightcrawler. And they are originally sold uh, as the cream wiggler. And they were they just looked like a nightcrawler, but they originally sold them on a harness rig. So you had one hook through the nose, and then you had a piece of mono coming off of that hook, and then you had a second hook further back. And they had originally two beads and then a spinner in front of it, and then that was connected to a, a barrel swivel, which okay. you could just clip onto. And so that was the first soft plastic lure. And so after these have been on the market for about 10 years, they started getting a ton of orders from a town called Tyler, Texas and Lake Tyler. And the requests that they were getting for these lures were unrigged. And the reason is, is that those people in Tyler, Texas. The Texas rig? There we go. Oh, yes. They, oh, they, they were rigging them with a, a standard you know, straight shank, like an O'Shaughnessy long shank hook. And they were using a, a, a bullet weight up in front of it, and they were pegging it. So that was the start of the Texas rig and the plastic worm and how this all kind of began to occur. And obviously, as plastics became more prevalent, especially, you know, in the 80s, what was it, the graduate? The future is plastics, man, plastics, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, they obviously, given the nature of the fact that all you need is a mold and a little bit of an imagination, you can make whatever shape you want to. Uh, so in that history, you have obviously the blue out of that, the salamanders, you know, the man's bait company, the Zoom bait company, all these freshwater bass fishermen were using these things, largely because of the success of the plastic worm. It was one of the best lures ever made. What was it right? called? The cream what? The cream wiggler. The cream wiggler. And now it's just what a great name. <laughs> yeah, C R E M E. On the logo, it's got a little, uh, it's got a little worm on a hook on the logo, a little crown on it. Um, <laughs> Wait, yeah. is the cream wiggler still in production? Uh, no. Yes, the the worm is. They just call them the cream worm. Okay. So, but the Wigglers are what they originally marketed them to, yeah. and so they sold them on like little uh, little cards and things like that. Um, it was really kind of an interesting thing. And then, you know, if you look at probably the most influential thing for us is that um, one of the really influential things for us is that in the late '80s, a gentleman by the name of Herb Reed down in Connecticut was looking for a way to have a soft plastic jerk bait because he was fishing a lot of situations where. He was he liked to fish, you know, like uh, you know, like long minnow lures or things like that, jerk baits in these situations. But obviously, because of the fact that a lot of these had, 
you know, two sets of trebles on them, they were getting hung up quite a bit. So he came up with an idea of he wanted to kind of mold a bait that he could fish, you know, in, in these situations like a jerk bait, uh, but not get hung up. And so he began experimenting with various molds and various iterations. And uh, in the late 80s, he developed the Lunker City Sluggo. Uh, the Herbreed Lunker City Sluggo. And as we all know, that's probably one of the five greatest fishing lures ever invented. I... I go through so many every year, man. It's just you know no matter what I like to I, go to. When I go through my gear acquisition phase for the year, mm-hmm. buy all the stuff you want to try, all the stuff that's great, you always just go back to the sluggo. <laughs> it's a, the most <laughs> versatile lore yeah. in the history of the world. Yeah. Like, yeah. History of the world. You can go from catching small trout with it or to tuna on top water. It's crazy. You can catch pretty much any fish that swims. Any fish that eats a small fish would eat a sluggo. Yeah. Um, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, the, the interesting thing specifically that made the Sluggo so great is that it was really the first time guys were taking a non-mechanical action as a soft plastic, okay? So when we talk about what is a mechanical action versus a non-mechanical action. So a non-mechanical action would be categorized as something like a spook or a Sluggo, where the angler is imparting movement via the rod tip to make the lure behave and dart and you know walk the dog whatever you want to however you want to fish it that would be non-mechanical mechanical would be like these paddle tails here or a lipped you know like a minnow plug like an sp minnow or a danny or something like that where you have a, a surface that is interacting with the water that causes it to wiggle and have action on top of that but the non-mechanical action is really the key because it enables profound versatility in your presentation. With a mechanical action lure, you are pretty limited to what that can do. Sure, I mean, we all fish plugs. We're going to twitch them, right? We all do. But it's pretty limited in how that's going to twitch. I mean, it's going to wiggle harder and kick out a little bit to the side on a twitch or something like that. That's an excellent, excellent point because the mechanical action, that's why you can be fishing with the same bait as the guy next to you. But one is a croaking fish and the other one isn't, right? Because it's all about that presentation mm-hmm. and then bringing it in. Yeah, 100%. And that's related to, to balance and ballast. And when you get a hard lure, you are set. That hard lure does a very specific thing. Now, it does it very well, but it does one specific thing. Now, you get a sluggo, you can fish the entirety of the water column with a handful of rigging changes. You're the maestro. You know, you're the guy up there conducting the symphony of everything, whatever you want it to do. You're in control. And by a little rigging trick, by a little weight, a little different hook style, a little different presentation, you can make it attain the the situation that you want it to hit as opposed to swapping out a whole different lure. hundred percent. You know, you know, even one of these little screw lock hooks, right? So uh, one of the things I started doing last year, um, just kind of on a whim actually is these, uh, these screw lock swim bait hooks, I, a lot of times you get them molded and you get them weighted, which is good when you want something that's a little thicker and a little heavier. You know, mm-hmm. if you want something in that quarter to three quarter ounce range, you want a lead molded into that. You know, obviously you can dremel out a rubber core and then crimp that to the shank and it does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you get just an unweighted swim bait hook with that screw lock eye on there and then go, you can get them at Dick's Sporting Goods. They're, it's lead tape. Just get mm-hmm. a piece of lead tape, a roll of it, mm-hmm. and then you can wrap the shank of the hook with that lead tape, and you can determine whatever fall rate you want for that day just with that lead tape. 
back in the day, I used to actually, before they started, before they had hooks like this readily available up here, I used to take a soldering wire mm. and I would just tie it real tight in the tip of the hook on a sluggo just to get that to go down just a little bit. Ballast down it out. The bottom. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think I actually still have it down in my basement, That's believe funny. it or not. You yeah. should bust it out. That's I so should. I got to take a look. I, I don't know. Things are, I'm trying to clean it up and get it in the way right now, but uh, <laughs> I took a little break. I was, I got that death, that death flu this past week yeah. of COVID, but it was, Gnarly. it was awful. It was not good. So I've been kind of out of commission for like 10 days, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'll take a look. It's probably down there somewhere. I know I didn't get rid of it. I know I had it in this basement. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That, like you said, and you just add a little bit of of that, or like stick even sticking. I would stick it in the sluggo a little bit. Like you know, remember those like little lead weights, uh, the nail they, weights, yeah. the nail weights used mm -hmm. to slide in. Like I would do some of that. I would just twist it. In. You know, most of the time I was just goofing around. Right. But it was definitely most effective when I had it on the bottom of a hook like that owner beast hook you're showing us with the weight on the bottom there and again like you said you could do that on the water real quick you know back in the day before i ever knew those hooks existed so yeah it was kind of neat that you mentioned that that lead tape though i didn't hear about that yeah that's a that's a good little one the other one that i figured out by a happy accident with rigging the sluggos and this is kind of a, a dual point we'll get to but first the, if you look at the the biggest problem in the durability of the sluggos is that the nose busts off on them yep. pretty easily. Usually after one or two fish, your nose is gone. But I noticed this when I was a little kid when I was fishing with it. I used to rig the worm hook into it, you know, put the eye in the bait a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I had that got ripped at one point, and I started feeling more resistance when I would twitch it. I was like, ah, oh, it's weird. So I reeled it in, and I kept twitching it and looking at it, and the line was now coming out the top of the sluggo, maybe a quarter of an inch behind it. Uh, and it turned into a diving lip that would blow out a little bit on it. So with that line coming out the, the top of the bait, when I'd be twitching it, it would actually dive down. Mm -hmm. With every twitch, it would keep diving down. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about that is you can replicate that just by rigging it by putting your insertion point a little bit behind the nose cone. Mm -hmm. And you can also do the inverse if you want to skip across the surface by going through the belly. If you wanted to skip up a little bit. And actually, it's funny you mentioned that because um, when you – when you used to build pull your own baits, which mm. will you start doing that again, please? Yeah. I love those baits. Okay. They were they were deadly. I'll make you some. I'll give me the mold. I'll do it. I'll crank some <laughs> up down in the basement. We got my parents a microwave for Christmas. We gave it to them last week because my brother's girlfriend lives in Nicaragua, so we had like her Christmas. So like their gift to my parents was a new microwave, and guess who snagged the old one? It's in the basement. Get ready to pour some pour <laughs> some rubber. So, nice. uh, but um, no, I remember when we were talking about because that was back in those days of the early aughts when we were trolling for football tunas, mm. and that was the big thing sluggos and x-wraps and i remember we were at first light one day when you worked there and you were showing me like dude you gotta you want to when you put it on the hook through the crimp because we were using i believe we were using the uh the owner ballyhoo hooks yep the right? 11 knot long shanks yep so we were coming through all the way through the bottom basically with the um the eye coming through the lore and then the crimp being tucked away so that lip kind of rose up just a little bit and it gave that little side to side kick when you were trolling it and that was my that was the lore I caught the most tuner on in the troll. Not spreader bars, not regular sluggos, but that rigged up the BMT in the half beat color, mm -hmm. which was a classic. Um, that was my most successful tuner during those tuna lore during those years. And actually, and then even like fishing them for uh, stripers on the flats and things like that. Uh, obviously, we wouldn't crimp it, but like there were times I'd play with that, just like you you talked about, have the insertion point come up at a different spot, and you know it almost looks like a popper, you know the way it would splash, but you'd have that 
ability of that body to really kick and really change directions, but then, you know, sink and float and float down and then come back up. So you kind of got the best of both worlds. And, and, you know, it's something I almost forgot about that got lost over time. And you just bringing it up, it set that light bulb back in my head, you know, something that we were doing 15 years ago. Yeah. And it works. That was the little trick with rigging those two. That yeah. was, there was a huge difference. And, and with you, man, you know, I, I, you know, probably just because I'm, I'm hard on myself just as a person, I didn't think that mine would outfish the normal herb breed stuff. And, but I, I gave them to all my buddies and my buddies call me like, dude, we crushed them on those today. I was like, really? That's great. So I started fishing them as well. And I started seeing it in my, my own experience as well. I'd fish them parallel with a white sluggo. And mm -hmm. it was two, two to three to one. I mean, they were crushing them. Yeah, same thing. I mean, back then, we'd probably do one one sluggo, two sluggos and an X-Rap. You know, that's what yeah. we were getting at. And that one, literally, same thing. Probably got two to one, three to one of the bites, you know, for sure. And we, our hookups were, were definitely getting more action, too, once we started fishing those uh, as well so you know kudos to you i don't know if it was just luck of the draw luck you know draw. Some, some things but again that was the one little trick that might have been the difference kicking that little nose up in the way we rigged it you know a to make it weedless because they were straight shank ballyhoo hooks they weren't the curved hooks like you have now so you know so most people probably rigged them with the hook pointing down or pointing up all the way through but we made it weedless all right and with the the way we had it set up that crimp was tucked inside and it just gave it that little lip to kind of kick back and forth. Yeah, it would seek. And it was yes. that, that was the action that I was looking to. Yes. I'd put it behind the boat and look at it a little bit. And if it wasn't seeking, I, I'd re-rig it. Yeah. Um, because just at that slow rate of speed, two and a half to three, three, something like that, that would just seek left, seek right, move back and forth. And it would just kind of be meandering back and forth. And that was the action that they wanted. And you, you nailed it exactly. It was like a seeker bait. And you could tell. You could tell when it was rigged right, for sure. And I, I feel like an that I like haven't even thought about that in years, but that was definitely um, a huge, huge little tri trick and trick there. All little nuance, yeah. Yeah, that was that was in a big, big phase. I learned a lot about soft plastics through making them myself. You know, because if you understand the properties that you need to put in to achieve the action that you want. You have to do your research. You have to look at all the successful concepts that have been invented, you know, be they come out of freshwater bass fishing, um, you know, if they're coming out of areas in the south when the guys are fishing for redfish and things like that. Take what they do, figure out what the concepts they're coming up with that makes them effective and try to incorporate it into your own stuff. You know, I, I really paid a lot of attention to what they were doing um, in the reservoirs in California, Lake Castaic, Shasta, things like that, where they were catching all those world record size largemouth on these big swim baits. Um, originally that began with the AC plug, which was a jointed wooden plug that had a plastic paddle tail coming off the back. And then a little after that, they came out with the Castaic baits, which is Castaic bait company is still in, in business now, but their original lures are no longer made. And those original lures were half of them were lipped. And then the other half was a soft tail with just a thin fish tail on it. So no kind of action generating tail. The action was generated by the lip. Mm -hmm. um, so they were half and half. They had, you know, threadfin shad, gizzard shad. They had a trout one. Um, they had a bluegill one as well. And so that morphed after time. There was a gentleman by the name of Butch Brown, uh, who was a legendary trophy largemouth bass fisherman out there. And he was the one who began fishing these enormous swim baits that were solid plastic that were modeled after these stock trout that those giant largemouth eat predominantly to get so huge. 
And there was a company by the name of Huddleston, the Huddleston Deluxe, the 8-inch Trout. Butch Brown bought a, bought a ton of these, and they were really kind of on the radar for a while. But he came in, you know, you have a five fish limit. So when largemouth guys talk about a certain pound bag, right, he was catching, you know, 40, 50, 60 pound bags, five fish limits of largemouth, of largemouth. So, you know, a 50 pound bag is five, 10 pounders. I mean, think about that. Good day. Yeah. I mean, how many guys? I mean, I've caught one fish that's ten pounds in my life, and I had to go to Florida and pay someone to catch it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and that was on a live shiner. And this dude's doing five tens in a day, and no one believed it. They would talk to the company. How's the? You know, how are these baits doing? And he would say, "I'm crushing enormous fish hand over fist." And eventually, the owner of the business said, "Look, you got to get a camera out there with you and film it because no one's going to believe you. I mean, mm-hmm. this is unheard of." And so they did, and they started making the you know the Butch Brown video series. And this guy was putting on film. You know, I think he had one bag that was 66 pounds. So think about the average weight of five, 66 divided by five. That's over 12. 12. Yeah, that's 12 2, 12 13, 3 average fish. 13 22. Yeah, that's. I hope that's right. Yeah, that's fine. You're the math teacher. <laughs> yeah, right don't tell anyone. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so that they came out with that, and and what the real, the big genesis with those uh, Huddleston Deluxe is they had a novel tail on them. I don't know if you guys are familiar with or have seen these, but they call them the the wedge tails, uh, or the diamond tail, and think of them as a three dimensional diamond. Is what the tail is made of. Yeah, I think I've seen something like that before. Okay. For sure. Okay. So these Huddleston baits, they are a molded harness inside of them. So it's a wire frame Mm -hmm. with an eyelet on them. And then they have a a lead core base, like a swim shad almost. Mm -hmm. And then they have an expanding foam top to really ballast them perfectly. So there's no roll. They swim dead upright. Uh, And then they have that wedge tail that moves through the water. They also call them vortex tails or things like that. And the reason they call them vortex tails is one of the things that I always try to think about when I envision a bait, right? Envision your bait is being moved through. You've got a, you got in a chamber and you're blowing smoke across it and it's full. Now think of the way that smoke is going to move Mm -hmm. off of that. Those are all waveforms in the water that are being displaced by that presentation. One of the most underrated and least uh, valued aspects of those fishery senses are their lateral line. But every single aquatic vertebrae, including salamanders, have lateral lines. And it's a series of pores along their spine that are directly linked to their central nervous system. And any change in those pores, those pores open to a canal that runs the length of it. And they have... um, uh, cilia in there that senses the changes like we have in our inner ear and so they're very sensitive to these pressure changes in the water and so displacement is massive and if you look at something like this these trouts when they're being pulled through the water yes it's a more subtle tail kick but it's displacing so much more water that's going to call in those big fish to come investigate it I'm just looking at the shash debate. That's the first thing that stuck with me mm. is like you take a look at the at the shape of it, A, but they have little fins on the bottom here, you know, like little planar fins. The the texture on the side is ribbed and there's different size ribs. You got real short ones up top. You got larger ones more spread apart here. You have sharp angles, a blunt nose, a curve. You got the paddle tail. And you when I picked this up and I looked at it the second you gave it to me, 
the first thing I thought about is I call it like the noise it would put out in the water. Right. Yeah. But you my, know? So my question is though is like when you also look at this bait and you look at the lateral line, like the coloring, you know, the how, coloring's incredible. How do you how do you make that sit perfectly like that? Like when you when you're making the mold. A lot of experience. <laughs> um, so the way that those are done, that's an aluminum mold that they have onto on a hot plate, and um, the plastic cooks at 325. Um, it will start to set up um, in the high twos. And so they have that hot plate set in the high twos, and that will give you a lot of time to work with uh, when you pour your bait. And he probably has four or five different Pyrex cups, all filled with different colors. And he pours what's in a technique called a skin pouring. So he will lay down an outer layer on the base of his mold first. He'll pick his mold up and he'll roll it around in his hands to create a skinning effect mm -hmm. on the outside. And then through that, he will pour his different colors in layers. And by adjusting the temperature of the hot plate with the aluminum mold, he will be able to control the viscosity of the plastic to get it to line up and adhere in the manner that he wants it to. Yeah, this this isn't me and you down in the basement throwing some Pyrex in a mold and putting it in a fucking microwave. <laughs> like, this is this is artistry. Burning your fingers. This is, yeah. <laughs> burn, <laughs> This this is a piece of art, man. It's strategic angler for soft baits. Exactly. You know, what? I was I wasn't gonna say. It. I was waiting for you to pop yeah. out the strategic angler, particularly when you were talking about um, the vibrations, because that's the first thing that came to my mind. Was you know those guys uh, as strategic angler? If you look at the allures on the shelf, they're gonna catch your eye because they look different than a lot of them. Mm -hmm. They look different than what's out there. Mm -hmm. But you can tell, you see the same things here. You see the fins like they have on the hard baits. You see the, the big gilt cuts, the different faces, you know, all those things that create that vibration in the water. And I know since I've known you, we've always talked about displacement of lures. Like we go out and fuck around in the flats and just throw lures and see what it looks like, what kind of what kind of vibe is it given off, I guess is the way we could describe it to the layman out here. Mm -hmm. Right? Yep. And um and it's totally an aspect that's overlooked. So I'm sorry for interrupting no, you. No, please go you, ahead, brother. You were on a roll. So no, it's all right, man. It's all yeah. right. I'm well caffeinated. Got a good night's sleep last night. <laughs> prepared. Um, yeah, so one of the things is while we're on the topic and we're looking at these swim baits, we're on the West Coast, you know, big bass swim baits, right? Um, one of the things that the guys that are pros out there, one of the things they'll always talk about is calling power of a bait, which is what I think makes the dock so effective because it has an enormous calling power. It draws fish in from a long way away. Now, that can be accomplished subsurface as well. It's like why you take a live pogey into a boulder field. You can draw out every fish over 40 inches in that boulder field to follow it around. They might not eat it, but you'll see them. Mm -hmm. And you can accomplish the same thing with your subsurface presentations, with your, uh, be they the diamond tail, your vortex tail, or your paddle tail, or a straight tail. And just as there will be different times where you want a thin bait, or you want a wide profile bait, or you want a dark color bait, or a light color bait, there are times where you want something that displaces a lot of water. And there will also be times where you want something that's soft and sneaky and, you know, a little more muted and understated. So these are all factors that, you know, dramatically go into, you know, how these things are, are made. And I fish the Huddleston ROF 8, 8-inch trout all the time. I mean, it's one of my go-to lures. And I don't know if there's anyone out here that's fishing that stuff. Um, I fish them in situations guys will fish Danny's where you want a big plug that, you know, creates a big disturbance. Okay, well, I got a Danny now. 
But now I can fish it as fast or as slow as I want to. Mm -hmm. I can fish it subsurface. I can fish it right up against the surface. I can fish it midwater column. I can drag that thing through the rocks. There's just so much more diversity in your presentation that you're afforded by these, you know, by these uh, soft plastics. And they also got that natural wiggle to them like a bait would have right. you know sometimes the hard baits you do get that mechanical kind of action on them and you know the more and more i'm able to watch fish eat it's definitely those ones that aren't mechanical you know they're chasing the live pogey around they're chasing some herring they're chasing bait and that that change of direction or that change in cadence is kind of like what triggers the strike 100 like you might get them interested with the mechanical bait you know i know a lot of times i'll be fishing something one might come up and swirl on it and like i'm burning that thing and stopping it you know i'm changing the cadence changing the movement and i'll come back and get that bite again you know but if i kept on that regular rhythm it's not going to happen it's not enticing them it's too mechanical because that's not what uh herring is going to do when it's getting chased no, it's, it's not, not just going to continue on its day you know it's going to freak the hell out and you got to kind of show that or it got hit and you're going to make it die down a little bit and that's the great thing about fishing the unweighted sluggos for example right you know you fish it just you know on the surface might pop up here and there depending on how fast you're doing it um but you know a lot of times you get that twitch twitch and that pause on that sink for that half second a lot of times that's when you get in your bite you know yeah, especially with bass because ultimately they're pretty lazy fish right yeah so like when you when you're almost overworking the bait and you do let it die so to speak then that's when the bite comes a lot of the time especially when they're in their negative moods correct you know, fish spend a lot more time in negative moods than they do feeding than they're ripping your hooks off and that's when you got to finesse them and you got to force them to bite and that's where the plastics really shine you can wiggle it in front of their face and make them bite it you know 100 percent. and that's the other thing too is because like if you just go fishing with four different hooks and some worm weights or you know jig heads like matt allen tactical bass heads are my favorite or the hoagie barbarian heads they were uh influenced by my friend eric harrison who you know knows more about fishing soft plastics and has caught more big bass true trophy bass on soft plastics than in my opinion anyone alive on a kayak out of a kayak nonetheless kayak. nonetheless yeah you know what i'm saying yeah he's not throwing sluggos and surface feeds at race point on those ocean-sized schools of a thousand fish he's pulling those things out of structure from a kayak okay mm -hmm. talk about how good that dude is right um and absolute you know, ninja absolute ninja uh so he was influential in those designs of those uh, those hoagie barbarian heads um and obviously of course his uh his slappy line or whatever that he has with the, the slappy eel the slappy eel yeah i mean it's probably one of the deadliest uh, in terms of catch rate probably one of the deadliest lures ever invented as well but you know if you go into a situation with you know a soft plastic jerk bait a large one some worm weights a jig head you know whatever your ability, you can fish any situation that you're going to encounter that day. And, you know, I know that sloppy fish is a jig head. I Texas rig them for the same situations. And I'll also use a tungsten weight, which I personally feel is important uh, because when I'm fishing those situations where I want to fish the slappy eels, uh, I'm fishing usually fairly shallow and around mussels or boulder fields. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want though in my opinion those fish are in there to eat lobsters i know that how many soft plastic eel imitations do we have now and everyone looks at a long thin piece of plastic and says oh it's an eel right nope. those fish don't go in there to eat american eels i mean they're almost like got a cites listing at this point they're not exactly an abundant creature um but there's a lot of lobster in there you know 
there's a lot of lobster in there and you open up any bass it's gonna be full of green crabs and lobster almost every time i mean back in the day we can keep fish you know before the over limit a lot of the times we'd find baby lobsters yeah. a lot in some of the big fish you know particularly the ones that we caught in deep water off the ocean front you know if we got some of breaking rock or or like off the jetties or something like that or even down off of uh, rockport for sure you know we wouldn't have bass that had good-sized lobsters in their mouth, and they make up a big part of big fish diet. I know that's something, you know, listening to, uh, I saw uh, Greg Myerson, the guy who holds yeah. the record for uh, the largest striper ever caught. What was it, 82, 81 pounds? 81? I, I believe, yeah, because the old record was, no, was it 78? Or was the it? old record was 78. Yeah, so the old 81. record was 78, so it was 81, something like that, yeah. And he did a... a, a, a uh seminar for the plum island surf casters and we went down there and watched them and you know and even though he caught it on a three-weighing an eel you know he said that's all he does he three weighs eels at night but it's not the eels that they're after it's the lobster yep and you know he had a couple little tricks i think he sold a little weight that had a rattle in it he was on shark tank yeah rattle sinkers yeah. yeah the rattle sinkers i remember he brought some to the show and i was with uh pete murray you, you met pete before yeah, I think, yeah maybe right and there was this guy uh we affectionately called smelly bob and we're <laughs> sitting there and you know like oh, am i gonna go spend my money on this thing smelly bob gets up and he goes if we see him buying some I'm like oh yeah we gotta go get some now because god forbid we're out there and he's whaling fish on these things and you know what i don't think i've ever used them <laughs> i think I, I think i bring them on the they're in one of my cases on the boat i don't think i've ever used them yet maybe we should give them a shot we also don't fish a lot of situations where those are applicable though right not for where we are right. i mean and i mean there's there's times i want to i just haven't done it uh like some of the rock piles out deep you know i've ballooned out there um i've definitely spent some time uh dropping mackerel down down the bottom like you know ridges that go up from like 80 to 60 feet and i have caught some fish oh, no kid i have caught some fish and um but it's just something i haven't really gone and put the time in to figure out where i find it effective to go and like take a charter there you know what i yeah, mean yeah, yeah, yeah. you know that's the thing that sucks you're not bending rods the whole time i can't play around like that 100%. Right? you know there was, there was an article that i think it was jeremiah put it up a couple of years ago jeremiah about, okay go he's, ahead he's big he's big and he's like the, the bass eat the lobsters the bass eat the lobsters and they absolutely do but there was this one diver that had written a blog about how he would dive for lobsters and on occasion when he would go down there would be big bass down there and the big bass would almost be trailing behind him, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of watching him, seeing what he's doing. And, he, and they're pulling lobsters. He's pulling lobsters out of the hole. And uh, when the fish had the opportunity, say he pulled out a short lobster and it would go flopping around, that fish would literally come up, eat it, and then take off and go on to the next one. It was almost like they were working together down there. Because they also, what they'll do is, if you see even the tentacles coming out or, you know, if they're hiding in the rocks like they do, like the fish will sit there. Like a, like a true predator, like a lion ready to take down a gazelle, will sit there and just stare into that hole until it has, it has its opportunity to suck that lobster right out. For sure. Well, I'm sure if you, uh, I know uh, some lobster fishermen, you know, from our area and up in New Hampshire that, um, you know, usually talk about when they're setting traps and hauling traps and throwing shorts back, like they'll be bass sitting underneath. You know, the problem is like some of the our rock piles we have around here. It's just like, where do you start? Right. You know, you talk about breaking rock. It goes from in front of the middle of Salisbury all the way up, you know, basically to Boris Head. You know, it's like a four mile stretch of underwater structure yeah. with lobster pots and hills and things anywhere. And there could be fish everywhere or nowhere or some specific spots. There's a few that are good, <laughs> but you're going to find those. Yeah. And um, 
But, you know, you talk to guys, particularly um, like those commercial lobstermen that get to see that on occasion. And, um, you know, sometimes they tell you, sometimes you don't. Yeah, there was a kid I was talking to at the marina this year that is a commercial lobsterman. And he was saying when he throws the shorts, shorts back sometimes, like the small, the, the illegal lobsters, like they're not going to make it to the ground because the bass are just marking them as, as soon as they go in the water. Yeah, I've heard that as well. I've heard that as well. Um, yeah, so but towards the lobster thing, you know, and, and why I want tungsten on my, my Texas rig for my sluggos is that's going to make contact with the rocks and the mussels. And the tungstens are really, really hard metal. Yep. <clears throat> so every time it touches one of these things, it's going tick, 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 tick. And that's that sounds like a bug. Knocking, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, bugs are late. Bugs are noisy creatures. You know, if you especially if you're out there at night and real calm and you're standing on a muscle bar, you'd be astonished how many muscles are I mean, how many lobsters are on these muscle bars at night. That's why the bass are there. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you, you they're everywhere. And if it's really calm out, really quiet out, and there's no you can't hear any surf, you're in an estuary or something, you hear the bugs moving around. You can hear them from under the water doing it. So they're they're real loud. And I think that when you're fishing in those situations where you want stuff bouncing off of stuff, you want to be sounding like a bug the most that you can. You know? Well that's what that guy uh Myerson said. You know, he um he actually built a lobster tank in his house and he would listen and try to match the decibels with the with the weights with the rattle sinkers and until he got the right decibels that's when he started fishing them okay. and like dude the guys won the striper cup like six years in a row yeah. like type of deal like it's not a joke no, like, yeah. he's a good fisherman he should sell the rattles is what he should sell not just the sinkers with the rattles like, yeah tell me the rattles I he, bro i think he does does he i think they do sell them. i need to start putting those rattles in my soft baits man <laughs> Ooh, you know what's funny i actually thought about that you know, when, when I was listening to him talk, but I think at that time he just sold the, the sinkers. Just sold the sinkers. Yeah. But they actually, they fell out. They fell well, think out. think about so. it. Like, I don't know, like when you're fishing with shrimp down south, right? You have a knocker on there. We get the knocker, right? Yeah. yeah. They're, they're constantly making noise too. It's kind of, yeah, it's just similar. Yeah. And, oh, I know. In the, in the Gulf with those popping corks, those guys swing for the fences when they pop those corks. Yeah. I mean, they reel up so they got, you know, a foot of slack. Yeah. And then they'll just swing like Jimmy Houston setting a hook. Really? <laughs> yeah. I, mean, uh, I never seen anyone fish it. So they're really ripping those things, huh? Yeah. Smashing no shit. them. I didn't know. I thought it'd be like a plop, 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 plop. I did too. That's logical. Fish it like a popper, right? I, I would think so. Right. Nope. No, just they're boom, ripping it. Boom, boom. Interesting. Yeah. And they usually have like a couple foot leader with a live bait on or something at the end. Yeah, or a paddle or, tail or something yeah. like that. Okay, so they'll put some lures on there. Yeah, as well. they usually will fish a paddle tail and a jig head. Gotcha. That's usually what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually, speaking of jig heads, I just picked up some uh, BKKs. Yeah. I like them. They're, they're, the hooks are so sharp. Some of the lures I got this year had BKKs on them, and uh, a lot of the local shops started randomly carrying them. So I've been picking them up and. Uh, those are my sluggo hooks this year, my unweighted sluggos. Um, they're super sharp, super strong. And um, so I found the jig heads the other day. And um, what I liked about them, the wire was a little bit thinner, you know. So, and where the headlock is, uh, where you put the bait. So I took like half ounces and I was able to fit six inch sluggos on them without splitting them, mm. you know. So being able to get, you know, the kind of current that refish. I mean, this year, my big bait, believe it or not, that was super successful early in the year. Was a six-inch slug on a three-eighths jig head. Caught that huge fish with you at the end of May. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. You were on the boat for one of them. Yeah, yeah. And that was just, um, you know, we were going smaller, kind of putting some heavier heads on a half ounce, and even in that current, because you could rip it down and get. I think that was the key. The smaller sluggo 
got it down at the bottom faster. You know, when we were fishing the nine inches on like one and a half, you had to get bigger gear. You had to really work it. It was exhausting. And, and you still kind of weren't even like making contact with the bottom. So I scaled everything down. I took, I changed my braid. I think on my spinning reels, on my like five Ks, I normally would have like 30 pound, I think I used to have yeah. a couple of years ago. And I dropped it down to 15. Mm -hmm. And I actually did it for Albie fishing a few years ago and just kind of kept it on. And I think that's also been a huge different thing. And you're always a guy, a light tackle guy. Like you're always scaling down your line. I mean, I've, I fish with you times and you're fishing like 10, 12 pound leaders and stuff like that. And I'm yeah. like, this guy's out of his mind, you yeah, know? Eight pound. Yeah. But like yeah. the versatility gives you to be able to drop things faster and get that presentation, which I thought was huge, you know? And that was kind of my. It's not like I haven't done it before, but the how much I was doing it was definitely, definitely a, a game changer this year for me. For sure. Oh, Martha once said to me, you can catch any fish in the sea with 15-pound test. It's true. It's yeah. true. It's, it's true. true. Especially with Bray, dude. Got all those tarpon records, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Christ, back in the day before, you know, Bray became a popular thing, we were fishing. 12. We were fishing, yeah, I was fishing 15, 17-pound mono yeah. on, like, Pen 975 LDs. Yeah, because you had to you had to worry about line diameter, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Couldn't cast yeah. 20. Yeah. You couldn't cast 20, yeah. And then, um, you know, brain changed everything. Absolutely changed everything. Yeah, we caught tons of fish on 12, 15, 17. Yeah. Tons and tons of fish on it. 40-inch yeah. class fish, hand over fist, no problem. Not a problem. You know? Not a problem. So I think you can pull on stuff a lot. You can pull on stuff a lot harder than a lot of people think. You know, I fish have your diameter when you want abrasion resistance. I got I got guys like that tell me that like set their striper reels at ten pounds of drag. I'm like, have you really pulled ten pounds I don't of drag? I think a striper can pull ten pounds. Yeah, of drag. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I don't know. I think your gear would probably snap at that point. You know, I'm catching those fifty five inch tunas on like twelve pounds of drag. And yeah. I, yeah. I've I've kind of like technically probably been fishing a little bit lighter on my drags lately. You know, just let them run, let them burn out, and. Bring them in. Yeah. You know, I, you know, except for back in the day when we were snagging and dropping pogies, though those were like on sunset. My drags were probably like around eight pounds and really just trying to winch them in. Well, get the hook set so they wouldn't swallow it. That yeah. was, I think that was the biggest thing too, is making sure that like you can really set the hook home, especially when we were trolling because we were missing a lot in the troll, even fishing like double trebles back in the day. Yeah. Uh, they just weren't getting stuck. Hmm. You know, they'd hit, they run and they'd fall off. So um, once I started fishing, like, my drags up, like, around, like, I would say probably, you know, by the hand pull test, probably around six or seven pounds. And they would just hit, and they go for one long run, and then you just kind of get them in quick. You get the big head shakes. But, um, you know, I think that made the hook stick harder when you were fishing pogies for those big bass. Because up until that point, I mean, I've always fished circle hooks otherwise, you mm -hmm. know, except for when the pogies were in. Um, but now with the circle hook rule, obviously we're fishing circle hooks, but we didn't get pogies really the last couple of years in that situation. So we haven't really played around with it too, too much. There's no need to. Yeah. yeah. I feel you, man. Yeah. Without a proper hook set, you're really relying on how the fish approaches the bait, right? Like if it's come, coming up to eat it, but if it's chasing it and it comes at it, you got to think it's swimming the bait towards you because mm -hmm. it's going to swim faster than your troll. Oh yeah. And you don't have a good hook set on it and then. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Chris, how many times have we. Walked up to a client and looked at a slack line of theirs. Yeah. And been like, your bit, your bit. Yeah, you got, yeah, you got running at you. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you flip that up, reeling really, really fast? You got him. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, that's, I guess that's kind of the, like, that definitely happens when we are like, 
when we're spot locked in light current situations yeah. and just like free line and baits behind yeah. the boat, yeah. they're like, "Oh, I thought my bait was over there." Like pointing like at three o'clock behind the boat. I'm like, yeah. oh, no, it's at eleven o'clock over there at the front of the boat." You yeah. see that big explosion? Yeah, that's the bass. That's you. Why don't you reel that in? <laughs> yeah, oh, that's, I mean, that's what I saw all the time when I was guiding because I would fish. I would fish my baits by rolling up into a boulder field and lobbing them into the boulder field and spin rods. Dude, it's the best. So casting them in there in four or five feet of water is what I was fishing for yeah. the most part. That's pretty uh, much what we were doing. Yeah. What we do. Exactly. So it's the same same type of bite. But sometimes slow trolling them would actually work a lot better. It's, it's weird, man. Weird. Yeah, I have a few spots where I like to spot lock and, and do that, and it's like really tire dependent. They're like, you got the windows, you know what I mean? And... I, I know when to get in, when to get out of my window. I know when it's time, then that bite shuts off. And um, at that point, I'll pull up and then I'll troll. I'll troll like the edges of where I'm fishing. I'll slow troll those pogies. Most of the time, it's pogies or mackerel. Um, and then we'll kind of get in those conditions again and we'll be able to set up, fish that for a few minutes. And um, But I also think, too, sometimes trolling, you have that presentation when you're pulling it straight. And I think the hookup ratio can be better that way. For sure. Because you're pulling that bait straight, whereas when you're on a spot lock situation, those baits, particularly pogies, have all the freedom in the world to go all over the place. Yeah. 360 degrees around your boat, and they will. Oh, you know how pogies are. They will. And you'll see them just, the bass chasing them, them circling around, and then sometimes the bass give up. Yep. You know, but in that situation, you take a dock and you fire it over their head. <laughs> <laughs> Danny Lee brought up a good point a few weeks ago. You ever blind your baits? No, no. I actually try to do the exact opposite in handling my baits. Like I don't touch them. Um, I know some guys that will go so far as to quote unquote season their baits, which is what the guys in Florida do, where they'll catch their goggle eyes and then they'll put them in a pen for a week and feed them. So mm -hmm. they rebuild their slime coat and they get hardened up and everything else like that. But no, I haven't. I mean, was he saying it was more effective? Or yeah, well, basically, uh, just a better hookup ratio. You know, the the fish doesn't if the predator's around it, it does it can't see it, right? So that's kind of it's just a blind fish in the water. And uh, you know, he's talking about how on the balloon or an anchor or even drifting, like throwing one live bait out one way, one out the other, it would not allow them to really school up like they can't find each other so you're not crossing lines mm. so there's a, yeah, a few different yeah i don't think were we talking about we we're talking about that after the podcast i don't think he talked about it on the podcast no. i wish he had yeah but basically we were talking about like anchoring up old school chumming for yeah, stripers yeah, yeah, yeah. And ballooning and stuff old school he's yeah. putting out eight live baits he's putting out eight live baits oh. no balloons no balloons no balloons was he trolling them on planer boards or no something? he was anchored up and you know he'd have like three or four down lines on weights, like yeah. on the okay. bottom, okay. like six ounce weights, staggered by weight. I'm assuming so they mm -hmm. splay out in the current like a tuna fishing. Uh, yeah, probably, probably okay. just around. Yeah. He has a big boat. Yeah. He has a big. Uh, <laughs> if it's funny, it's a sea ray, but it's a sport fisher. Okay, it's really weird. Okay, so you like it's not what you're thinking of when it comes to a sea ray. Yeah, it's a down east sea it's, ray or something. It's <laughs> like a lures. Yeah. It's really strange. Okay, uh, so it's his family's boat. He's a little bit younger than us, but um, yeah, you're saying he'll fish like four rods with weights down and then we'll fish four no balloons nothing i know when i do that kind of fishing the light current out in the ocean like we're talking ocean front fishing um you know in the river i can get away with it because the current's moving and it keeps my bait somewhat straight and staggered but when you're out there it's a free-for-all and he doesn't fish balloons and i'm like how do you keep them like don't yeah. you get tangled up all day he goes well no i blind them yeah. So he takes he he pokes them in the eye. So he goes. They just they don't know where the fuck they're going. So they don't bump into. They don't see each other and try to school huh. up. 
And I'm like, you don't get tangles? He's like, never. He goes, I do it by myself. I fish six, six, seven lines. Interesting. I found it very interesting. That's really interesting. Very interesting. And then I know sometimes when I'm out there, too, with that lack of current, you know, compared to, like, the river, you know, we talked about slow trolling, how it keeps it straight. And so at least if something comes, like, they get a pretty good shot at it. I mean, I've been out there at days looking at a balloon and a bass just freaking whacking a mackerel around for, like, what seems like five minutes. Yeah. And it's like, dude, eat it. And they just get tired and piss off. So, you know, you have something in there that doesn't even see the bass coming. You know, it makes sense. It makes, makes sense. sense in that situation. I mean, it's a trick that tuna guys have done, Yeah. you know, forever. Yeah. You know, poking out the eyes on a bait, or at least one eye, just to kind of get it a little messed up, you know? Commercial guys love mutilating fish. They yeah. just, <laughs> just want to kill. They do. Like, Fallon's just a killer, dude. <laughs> Anything must die. I'm just going to cut all the fins off of this one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I cut all its fins off before I put them in there. You'd chunk up that dogfish, would you? Yeah, right? <laughs> Machete like they're going through the rainforest exploring. But that's also something, too, like I, I screwed around with. Um, speaking of soft plastics out in the anchor, I mean, I've, you know, if we're having a slow day getting mackerel, I got no problem throwing a sluggo out there and just dead sticking it. You wouldn't believe how many fish you catch just doing that sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, you're chumming up to the boat, you get them around. Um, I mean, how many tuna have been caught by guys going to a feed, throwing a sluggo out, sticking it in the back corner, and then that rod goes off Tons. while you're throwing out your $100 lure? Tons. You know? Tons. Tons of examples of that. Tons of examples. And it goes back to that non-mechanical action. Mm-hmm. It's just sitting, displacing water, getting its little wiggle. And think about it this way, too. You're getting, you're listing a little bit when you get a little bit of a chop, right? Mm-hmm. Every time your boat lists, your rod's drawn tight and then going slack. Yep. Yep. You're getting so two you're or three feet. Putting boom, a little man. twitch in it. It's going poof. Yeah. And it's settling back down. And poof. Yeah. Settling back down. It's not just a static stick bait just sitting exactly. there. It's still swimming. There's some as movement you go. to it. Yep. There's some movement to and, it. You know, that goes back to the versatility of these silly little things that, you know, what was it called again? The original? The original, cream, oh, the cream, cream worm. worm, the cream worm, cream wiggler, cream worm. Isn't it incredible though? I mean, how much, how much advancement has been done? And then you look at the Japanese, what they've been doing, the the stuff they come out with, it's crazy. Well, they've really gotten into bass fishing in Japan. Yeah, the big innovations coming out of Japan now, and the big innovation in general is always going to come from that freshwater scene. For always, sure. always. Sure. I mean, I got into jigging spoon, uh, jigging spoons this year. Yeah, and that was a largemouth bass technique. Started out Alabama. Yeah. Yep. And it was it was super deadly. I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun fishing them. And I can't wait. I got some bigger ones for this year. I'll show you later. Dude, in even the bigger? Yeah. Well, the, I needed heavier weights. Yeah. Um, it worked good in, like, light current situations. Yeah. Um, but, like, I could catch fish in the mouth drifting with them. Um, like, I think Dan and or me and my dad went out one day. And we're like, oh, let's see if these things work without getting bait. Let's just go right. take a few drifts in the mouth. So we did like four drifts and caught like eleven or twelve fish. That's and, crazy. And like, yeah, that was the day we were out there. And you caught the sturgeon too. Yeah. Well, that was actually a different day when you and I went out. Okay. We didn't do as well that day, and the difference was is that we were like a mid tide and I couldn't get it down. That was my first sturgeon I caught, and I actually caught another one this year too. So I was two for two in sturgeon this year. <laughs> yeah. Dude, the second one almost killed me. We were trolling for bluefish and we tail hooked it. Oh yeah, that's oh, what happened God. to me. Oh, and oh, I I must have got a hook through my hand like three times trying to get that thing out so mine was wild the uh i I hooked the surgeon and the thing's just ripping line and i'm like what the hell and i'm like it's got to be a surgeon and i was like wait a minute like i don't know it's just going out and i'm bringing it in and as i'm bringing it in all of a sudden i'm like what the hell do i have it was like i had a log you know it just wasn't moving it wasn't it wasn't doing anything but it was there there was no doubt about it and i get it to the boat and i just see a white belly 
I actually hooked it on the opposite side. So when I was reeling it in, I flipped it over. You rolled them, yeah. And it actually went into like a catatonic state. It no was kidding. like knocked out. Huh. And the thing just came in like docile, upside down. And then I got I got the bait out of it. I flipped it over and I revived it and swam off like nothing. What'd like you that. get it on? It was the uh, it was the Rapala. Yeah, I got one yeah. on an orange Rapala. Yeah, it was, it was, but it was an orange one. Yeah, I just grabbed it. Yeah, mine didn't need it. I don't know. I just caught it backwards. It sucked. <laughs> sucked. And it was in the mouth, and it was rough, and I was right up in the jetty. It was just pain. Oh, that's fun. That's oh, when I realized they had a really big butthole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. They are a cool-looking fish. Like, I've seen them in pictures. I've seen them, like, you know, jumping around everywhere. But that was, like, the first one I ever, like, touched and saw. And yeah. Up close. What a cool fish. They are. Dude, they're like dragons, man. It's like, it's like Teflon. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's really weird. Really, they're wicked hard to the touch. Yeah, yeah on the top, and they look like they would be. So but so. Yeah, but yeah. dude, they're everywhere. Like you come around a slack low around here, they are. It's it's like I know when I'm on a trip and I'm coming in. I'm like, all right, guys, keep your eyes open. You know, uh, low tides coming up. You're going to be seeing sturgeon jump all the way back in the stretch back to the river. That's crazy. And we'll see like three or four, like without a doubt, like on clockwork. And you still can't target. You can't target them legally and technique-wise, right? Correct. 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 You can't legally target them. Yeah. Even yeah. though they seem to be everywhere. Yeah. I wonder how. Eh, that's interesting. That's interesting. I'm surprised more guys chunking don't catch them. Yeah. You know, you'd think that guys chunking would catch a few, but you don't really hear about it, do you? No, you, you know, you really don't. Every now and again, you have someone that has like a clam that's floating around down there, and they'll they'll. It gets vacuumed up. up. But um, I, I I would assume that's happening in murky water. It's almost like they could see the gear. I don't know. Yeah. Like they know, you know. Interesting. It's uh, and a lot of a lot of the catches are snags. Yeah. You know, it's very rare you actually get one in the mouth. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. so interesting to me. They're cool fish. If they ever open them up, I'd love to spend time trying to figure out how to catch them. Well, yeah, it makes sense with the, the. I mean, I've been fishing the river for twenty years, and the only two I caught, I caught one trolling. Actually, we hooked one and jumped, and. Uh, we were trolling mackerel with uh, with a treble hook on it. This was like 15 years ago, and uh, we ended up losing it. But again, treble hook, so I don't really know if it ate it. The one we caught, the one I caught with Dan was on a jigging spoon, so regular hook, and then the other one was on the X wrap. Yeah, and all of them were snagged. Yeah. So you know, think about how many millions of drifts I've probably done in that river with a mackerel and a circle hook. And uh, last year we hooked one. Actually, now that I think about it, two seasons ago we hooked one. We never saw it, but we fought it for like a half an hour. And I was just <laughs> like, "Please break off!" It just it took us off in the deep water. We yeah. drifted out, and we were like in forty-five feet, and that thing just didn't want to come off the bottom. And we were actually fishing wicked light that day too. We were fishing like um, my bait runner rods. So couldn't really lift it. It was probably a really, really, really large specimen. Yeah, it might have been one of those real dinosaurs. Yeah. So uh, we ended up just popping. We only had like 20-pound leader on there. ended up popping. But they got the fight out of it, that's for sure. But, yeah, so. So, all right, back to the, the yeah. soft plastic yeah, man. topic, though. You know, being someone that's poured them, made them. Yeah. Like, how do you even go about, like, starting to create a mold? Is it a sure. silicon mold that you're sure. making, or what, what is it? Yes. I mean, you, you certainly can make your own. I buy them as well. Uh, it's okay. just way easier to buy them because they've been finished correctly and everything else like that. But if you were going to start from scratch, either you're going to start with a master. So you either make it out of clay. You can replicate a lure that's existing already. Um, you get a two-part silicone, uh, Alumalite. I get them from because Larry Dahlberg um, is involved in the project, and he was the one who actually got me into it. He was doing Hunt for Big Fish. He did three or four episodes. That was great. Dahlberg's, that was the best show. Dahlberg is, in my opinion, the best of the TV guys, yeah, at least of this generation. Yeah, yeah. him and Jose. Um, and just the sheer knowledge and contributions to the sport that man has made is, is amazing. Um, 
so he started that with Illumilite is his venture, and I want him to receive whatever little I spend on it. Um, so you can get a two-part room temperature vulcanizing silicone, make a box. Um, you can use like um, pretty much anything. Just make a little box, Tupperware container or whatever. Glue your master to the bottom of it with a hot glue gun, pour in your silicone, and let the silicone cure. Pull the bait out. You have a replica of whatever you want to make. Mm -hmm. um, then you can pick up online. You can get soft plastic through. Uh, I use dead-on plastics now, which is, in my opinion, uh, the best stuff. Baitworks and, uh, and dead-on are the two that I use right now. Uh, and uh, you go online. You get raw plastic. Cook it in a microwave. Add colorant, glitter, whatever you want to it. Hardener, softener, micro balloons, tungsten powder. Have fun with it. Play around with it. Make them in whatever colors you want. Hardness, softness, etc. And you have fun with it. You can get in the game for, with excluding a microwave, 150 bucks. You're in the game. Including the, um, including if you get a mold too. Yeah. Oh, for the mold, sure. Not the, some of the molds I've seen are pretty expensive. Yeah, the yeah. aluminum molds are like a hundred bucks, but yeah. you can get a silicone mold for like twenty. You know, it's funny that we're talking about this because my, I've done it with you. I went to your apartment once back yeah. way back in the day. The meth lab. Yeah, I got fired <laughs> from uh, from making the doing the coloring. He's like, you only need to do two drops, and you know, typical me. Oops, <laughs> oops. It was supposed to be a light little <laughs> blue and pink for a herring, <laughs> and no ended one, up looking like Superman. <laughs> no one, no one, Chris. Seven drops went into the into the actual plastic, and another ten went on his shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I can't hold it. I'm the messiest kid ever. Oh, yeah. But anyways, um, when my brother was making a movie, you know, he was made Uncanny Harbor there. Yeah. Um, it was about, you know, there was a fisherman involved in the movie. And um, a big prop in the movie was a knife for a murder, right? And he needed a prop knife. And he actually took my Dexter, my fillet knife, and they made a mold down in my basement. And exactly how you said, they made a little box out of... Um, um, poster board, you know, like the stuff that you uh, what's it called? It's called poster board, like right? the phone board, the phone poster board, board, yeah, yep. So they made a little box of that, they took the knife, they put it in, they poured all the plastic on it, you know, did whatever they did, put it up, and then they just do uh, he had the knife in my the fake knife in my knife, and he goes, Which one's the real one? and I couldn't touch it, I just had to stand back like five feet. I picked the wrong one. No kidding. I picked the fake one. No kidding. No, no joke. It was unbelievable. That's cool. So what was the knife actually made out of after, after he poured it in the So he, he ended up making it out of uh, the, like the rubber you would make a rubber lore out of. And he really? just made it super hard. The soft plastic. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Because yeah. I know they, they also make pourable rubber that you can use yeah. too. Probably probably whatever it was. Whatever yeah. it was they used. But it was rigid. It wasn't it wasn't floppy or anything. Yeah. Like, so now every time I watch an action movie, I have to realize this guy's a sissy with a rubber, rubber knife. knife. Yeah. <laughs> They're rubber knives. They're rubber knives. I couldn't believe how real the like Abby. I think Abby's girlfriend painted it, and it was incredible, dude. It was absolutely incredible. Those art kids can do wonders, can't they? Yeah, They're little magicians. They are. They are. Yeah, like I'm. I'm just looking at this bait you gave us, and I'm just like, yeah, no way am I ever going to be able to make something like yeah, that. Yeah, like the detail that goes into a mold like that. That's so. That is actually from one of the most widely available swim bait molds on earth. Really, you can get that mold from a million different companies. All right, really. yep. get it, make it in white. There we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just make them in white, all you want. But you I know? like the eyes too. He put the he put the eyes on there. Yeah, the like black the, eyes, legit black eyes. Like that's awesome. Just great attention to detail. Oh, yeah, I got plenty of those from all my fly tying adventures. All that good stuff. Yeah, you're into that too. Yeah, I think I've tied a few hundred flies since Thanksgiving. Mm. What's your favorite one to tie? You must have a favorite. No, not really. <coughs> not really, to be honest with you. Um, whatever I need to make. I have a pattern that uh, 
right now is in the process of potentially being approved by one of the larger fly distributors. Excellent. A pattern that I've been working on for two years is called the Bay Anchovy, B-A-E Anchovy. Ooh. And um, it's, it's it looks like a little, it's an Alpie fly that I started mm-hmm. tying when I was guiding for Alpies. Um, and it's really simple. takes two seconds, total guide fly. Um, three materials. And you tack it down with uh, tack it down with a little bit of UV curing gel. So I can bang out twenty of those in in a short amount of time, which I enjoy. I'm um, spinning the deer hair, tying all the bucktail. Yeah. yeah, I'm into all that stuff, man. It's, it's awesome. Fun. Yeah. So do you prefer like synthetic or organic materials? Depends on the situation. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, if I want something stiff that's not going to foul, that's going to shed water well, I'll go with my synthetics. If I want really good action subsurface, if action is more important to me than profile, then I'll go naturals. Naturals breathe unbelievably well in the water. Yeah. I have uh, my wife's uncle. He's been tying flies for forever. He's in mm-hmm. his 80s now. Yeah. And it's a true hobby of his. And, and uh, I'm a duck hunter. Yeah. And he was, he's always like, I, I want those under feathers, the, the, <laughs> the, bre- the breast feathers out of the common maganza. <laughs> so like, I don't even want those birds. So every time I chew one, I bring it over to his house. Oh, perfect. Oh, thank you so much. Does he tie freshwater flies out of those? Is that what he's doing? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He yeah, does trout flies. Yeah. Yep. He does trout flies, and then he tie, he'd tie me a bunch of nice big clousers. I just don't really fly fish. Yeah. So. Clouds are so deadly. Yeah. So deadly. Uh, the, in the springtime, man, I outfish everything on clouds. Yeah. Everything. Yeah, because that's, that's a sand deal, ultimately, right? It's anything. I mean, yeah. you can make it the fuselage of the, the clouser, which is just lead eyes on a shank. Mm-hmm. You can make it as... Yes, it's a thinner profile, but really, if you look at it, bucktail is so fluid in the water that there's so much movement and undulation and kick on the tail. I'll fish them in a, on an intermediate line with a kind of a smaller weight and a fair amount of bucktail, which will slow the fall rate of it really well. And then one or two knots of tide, that thing's neutrally buoyant, just sitting there undulating back and forth. It's and, deadly. And putting a clouser fly as like a, on a dropper loop on a lure is yeah. kind of a lost art. Like I still do it when they're finicky. Like a lot of times we'll get like small stripers, schoolies, especially early in the year that are on really small baits that are really hard to imitate. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, sometimes you'll rip through and go through a bunch of things in your tackle box to try to match it. And sometimes they're really annoying. You'll get like one fish on your first cast on one lure, then you go through 10 more casts. Like, what the hell? You switch it up. Yeah. And then, uh, but if you try that cup, like I have a box of little clouses just for that situation to put a quick dropper loop in my leader, put it on there. And, you know, a lot of times you'll double up because you'll get one on the clouser and then you get that competition bite and then they'll bite the lure behind it too. So, you know, little little old time trick that you don't hear about much anymore that can be very successful, particularly on smaller fish. For sure. Especially yeah. early season when the bait's small. Yeah. 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 Fishing those little one and a half inch young of the year herring. Yeah, yeah. But young thinking herring. on the small scale, I find it extremely impressive when you work under like when you, it's a magnified workspace, right? Yep. And then you're tying like these little nymphs and teeny tiny flies. Yeah. And uh, with my experience in fly fishing, you know, I can cast like yes, but like stream fishing and stuff, like to be able to take those nymphs, nymphs, and just let them kind of float back and get them into those holes where you want them. Yeah. And then pull fish out of them. It's pretty awesome because I mean, you can't you. There's no other way to present that bait other than having a fly rod. There really no, is no, no other way. You know, because this is just so light. But um, it's just amazing how you have this little teeny tiny bead and this little teeny tiny hook, and you can catch these fish. It's all, it really is a lot of fun. That's really cool. Um, what are we doing? Can we go to Pulaski? Yeah, do you want to go steelhead fishing? A couple know, weeks? Oh, whatever. Freeze when, your tits off? When can we go? I feel like every year we... Well, First week of May is the best week to go. All right. Perfect. I'll be working. In school. Yeah, so... <laughs> what, April break would be good, too. Okay. What's that fly set up like when, you, when you're when you out there? For you, the steelhead? Yeah. Uh, for steelhead, it's usually just a, th- a bobber 
and two BB split shot okay. and a bead. Gotcha. And that's it. Yeah. I mean, I know guys look, I mean, I'll swing flies for them too. It's not the most effective thing in the world, but it's fun. Uh, some guys will swing like an intruder fly, which is usually they'll use like a two handed rod, which yeah. is spay casting and they'll use a section of sinking line. So a coated lead line basically with two loops in the end. And then you loop off your floating line, the sink tip, and then you loop on a short section, like 30 inches or so of, of mono. And then you have your fly off that. And then that swings on a 45 degree angle down through the run. Um, to move those fish so that was the alternative method but usually i'm I'm nymphing is the technique that it's called for steelhead yeah yeah i never done it i know back in the day you me and fallon always made plenty of us to go and we it just seemed like every time we were going to go we got hit with a massive snowstorm and couldn't yeah. make the five hour ride it was like three years in a row yeah and we never ended up going well there was a few years where i would go up like twice a month yeah all through the yeah. season too old for that stuff now i feel yeah. like i would need like an amazing pair of neoprene gloves or i'd just be a wicked bitch it dude <laughs> it's i mean the dude there's some days where i fished like in january you fish all day and you get home and you take like a 25 minute long hot shower and you're in a 73 degree hotel room and you're still in a hoodie and sweatpants and you get your long underwear on and you're still cold. You know, your bones are cold. It's well, a different. Well, you and my brother went up and you did the drift fishing trip in like the middle of January or something one year. Yeah, because we had to get that scene for Oarsman that we did with Mark Ledden, my, yeah. my homie up there. We're probably going to fish with when we go up. Um, yeah, so the concept we wanted to fish with him, it was about the transition of the seasons. So we started Halloween, the week of Halloween. Then we went up the mid-end of November, which is kind of like prime time. Mm-hmm. And then we went up for when it's just gnarly. And we waited for the weather to say, we're getting a snowstorm. And then we just went up and, and did the the one day with him. Nick said, Nick was telling me, no, my brother doesn't fish much at all or really get out much when doing outdoor stuff. And he was like, dude, they would cast and immediately their guides would like ice over. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, what? <laughs> it was not 19 degrees and snowing sideways when we filmed the last bit of that. Yeah. Yeah, we got two, two feet of snow in, in, in a day and a half. Oof. 36 hours, you get two feet of snow. It's that lake effect just keeps piling on you. The guys got some beautiful fish too, and it was shot really well. Yeah, we got, that was probably in terms of all of my steelhead fishing that first week we went up end of October with him. That was my best numbers of big steelhead fishing I've ever had. We caught a lot of big fish that week. Are those videos still available anywhere? Yeah, on my personal YouTube that I've locked down tighter than Fort Knox. But I'll send you the links. I got everything. Yeah. I got a hard drive, and I got my own personal YouTube. A lot of times when some of the guys come over here to do a podcast, like go hang out and watch some fishing videos, you know, I get jacked out in the mood. I'm like, you guys got to see this. And like, there's still a few Stellwagon Media ones kicking around on YouTube. We watch. Yeah, the ones that we did for clients. Yeah, they're yeah. still up. The yeah. Albi one was sick. And, the uh, Albi one. I think Trash Fish is still up there. Trash Fish is still up. That's on the Facebook stuff. Yeah. And then the stuff that we did for Hummingbird, the stuff we did for Shimano. Yeah. That's still up there. Yeah. The rest you just um, called the FBI. To tackle to lock it down. Yeah. <laughs> ta- tackle direct. Uh, tackle direct. Only stuff. Twitter people can get it. <laughs> yeah. Only the, yeah. Only the CEOs at Twitter can access it yeah. now. <laughs> exactly. Right. The FBI, you mean, and the CIA. Yeah. <laughs> That's not talking That's about that. That's podcast. a whole other podcast. Uh, we can get into my schizo stuff later. But, uh, <laughs> we should do a conspiracy podcast. Oh, this group would be great. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Just give me three monsters and let me go. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have the documents. <laughs> the New World Order is conspiring with lizard people. Holy shit, Alex Jones is in the house. I have infiltrated their warehouse, and I know for a fact that they blink horizontally. 
I saw them lick their own eyeballs and they smell of sulfur. <laughs> All right, Jay, you got to calm it down. I don't want a billion dollar lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness gracious! Yeah, yeah. So that would be that would be super cool to go up there and, and pull out sky and do that. And we'll we'll center pin when we go. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Yeah, that is so the way to do it. It's so much fun and yeah. it's a direct drive reel. So you're just you're you're palming it the whole time. Yeah. Yep. No drag. So you're going to hook a, you know, 8, 10, 12 pound rocket ship and be directly tied to them, man. It's so much fun. So cool. So much fun. And so cool. you want to go up there when it's like warmer out. Yeah. You really do. Because mm-hmm. when it's cold, it's the weather can get to you. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's going to take away from your fun and the fishing's a lot slower too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I think about like cold weather hunting, never a problem. But when you when you throw water into the mix, it just makes everything way colder. Yeah. I mean, even those last one of the couple of those tuna trips we went with Kyle, like it wasn't mm-hmm. even so cold out. It was right. just getting wet yeah. and being wet all no, day. No. Ugh. No, I'll take I'll take 32 in snow over 40 in rain any day. Any day. Any day. Any day. Um, but that's the other thing about winter fishing for the steelhead too that's brutal is that their metabolisms are so slow. They're not moving around and feeding aggressively. Correct. Like you fish for them in the fall, you fish for them in the spring, the water's warmer, they're moving around, they're aggressive. If you present to the right fish, you're going to get bit so you can fish fast. You know, so you're given each spot, you know, five, 10 drifts and then you're moving you're on. You're moving on. Right. Uh, as opposed to the winter, you, you cement shoe it in a deep hole. Yeah. And you fish it all day long and you wait for them to turn on for the 45 minutes that they're going to bite that day. Mm-hmm. Same thing, kind of like cold front fishing up here. Yeah. You know, not necessarily that the temperature is cold, but the pressure drops. You get that windy, you get that high sun. And like now, you know, you're going to get a slower day. You're probably fishing those little deeper holes, like off the edges in the river or maybe even in the deep water. You're getting your early morning bite. And as that sun comes up and that wind picks up, you know, things are going to, it's going to be a slower day. Your approach changes. You spend more time at a spot waiting for it to turn on. And a lot of times in those trips, you make that trip in a 45-minute bite where it's not really consistent like all day right. long like it was the day a couple days before. Right. You know, and that's just an adjustment you make as a, as a guide or as a fisherman that like, okay, so like here's what they were yesterday. Where's the adjacent deep water? All right, how am I going to get it down there? And, you know, how, how much time am I willing to give it? Because I know they're going to be there and I know they're going to turn on at some point. Right. You know, so that's just the way it's it is. It's a long day. It's a long day. Those are always the tough days. That hard northwest wind, you know, bright blue sky, always on a Saturday for some reason. Always on a Saturday. So it's plenty of boat traffic. There's millions of boat traffic. So those are always the toughest days of the year for sure. And um, you just got to kind of change your game plan. You got to understand that. And like for me, at least, you know, I try to get out there. I might leave those days a little bit earlier, like at 430 in the morning to procure my bait and get that ready for that first light. And have my bait ready to go at first light in the spot where I want to go. Get that bite first. And then as they transition out, set fishing things a little bit deeper, you know. Exactly. That's so, what you need to be doing. You know. So it's just, you know, paying attention to those conditions. Paying attention to conditions, staying flexible, being on top of it and all that good stuff, you know. That's where these things come in handy too. Soft baits come in so handy when they're in negative moods and they're switched off. Absolutely. Especially you get super saturated bait uh, situations. Like this year I fished at night a lot. Yeah, I fish probably three nights a week this year, mm-hmm. all throughout the season. It was beautiful, man. Like I've never, this was the first year in my life I didn't talk to anybody, and mm-hmm. I just went fishing. Mm-hmm. And 
I didn't even care about like what was happening where. Yep. I'd been fishing this water for twenty some odd years. By now, I better know where to go at a certain time of year, you mm-hmm. know, or else I got problems that are not related to if there's fish there or not, you know. Oh, you technically be insane, right? It's like yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I well, you know, that's I just got enough experience now. I know where they move around and stuff, and and that's the fun part. Like, yeah. does your patent hold true? Is what you were thinking about the day before? Like, yeah. all right, I'm gonna get this shot because of this. I'm gonna get this shot because of that. And when it works, it's like, all right, cool. I'm like figuring this out for sure. And like, that's the fun part for sure. You know, whether it's big fish or small fish or lots of fish or a new spot, you know, I mean, I know, for example, for me, like I fished pretty much the whole second half of my season in one particular area that was always like, you know, a go-to spot for certain things, you know, but it just happened to be like, that's where the majority of the fish were. And then, you know, it got to the point where it was like, we're doing the same we're doing it every day for like a week or two and you know since you're down there you're committed or you're where you were it's committed and now different tides different things you stop moving around to different features and different structures because now you're committed to that spot so you go and you investigate and you learn a little bit more and now it's like i've taken what i've known about this particular area and now i know if i instead of waiting for a certain tide to get down there now i know all right this stage of the tide you know this spot's been productive it made sense i tried it it worked so there we go and we had some freaking killer days i got a guy i work with across the hall from me he's a teacher he came out with me last year him and his brothers and it was just like we caught 60 mackerel and i'm like i don't know if these are going to be enough given the conditions that are coming out today and like gotta love it dude like it was like all right guys here's how you do it i'm showing them how you do it oh you got one on here let me get one out boom let me get one out and it was just rotating i just lived in the live well for two hours and then we ran out of all 60 mackerel we started chunking them out and just throwing chunks out and then i just started throwing sp minnows and sluggos that's awesome and then we just continued to catch and then we're like oh you bored let's go catch bluefish and then we went out and got like a dozen bluefish in a half hour it was one of those freaking awesome days how was the bluefishing this year it was good it yeah, was it good. good. Yeah, it was definitely more consistent than last year mm-hmm. in terms of they were at least staying in the same general areas. Yeah. Um, the year before was kind of like what we had been seeing where you get them one day, like say, I don't know, in 20 feet of water just outside the river. And then the next day they'd be nine miles south in 80 feet of water. And right. then the next day they'd be like, there was no rhyme or reason. They were just pushing, you know, little bait balls of mackerel all over the place. And this year they just kind of seemed to be in one general area, like along the beachfront. Mm-hmm. So somewhere along the beachfront, you would find them and what was really cool they were really in like big schools like back in the old days you know coming up and finning for you no we didn't i don't think i got i got a few on top water just ones that like happened to pop out but it wasn't like the old days where there's birds and you go and you cast on them and stuff but well the schools were so big i was able to just get on plane and go 20 miles an hour and mark them i'd mark like it would, you had to be pay attention yeah it was like one of those things oh is that a fish or is that like you know just be like a light blue on my screen yeah. go by yeah well i just stopped the boat i'd swing over it'd be a mother low toss out the x wraps uh we'd hook up i'd throw the spoon down get one on a spoon you know pass yeah. that off double up and it was great it was, i find it interesting the color selection of those fish though because, like, why is orange? Why was orange the most productive color? It usually is. It's always been a good bluefish color. Yeah. As long as I can I don't know why. Yeah, like, what is orange that's down there that they're eating? Squidish, Squid. maybe? It's got to be. Got to be. I know in the early season, you know, when the when the bluefish will get down on Cape Cod on those squid, 
guys are fishing orange rangers a ton for yeah. him in that circumstance and they, i know they all love orange for him at that time of year yeah i don't know everything i know that he's purple purple is always a good one purple. for me for bluefish too Interesting. Cool. i usually start off i'll go like two orange and two purples yeah. and then like there'll be days where like oh shit we we got 500 orange let's go all orange like that happened a couple times this year yeah and like again like uh one day it'd be all purple like we get three fish on a purple and then i go all right i'll go three purples and an orange and i'd still get hit some purples and i'd be like oh, maybe it's the place where it isn't spread but i'll throw another purple on yeah. there and then that one would get hit yeah. so and then two days later it'd be the opposite it'd be all orange you That's know just the color they want. and then one day it was green mackerel my buddy was slamming them i'm like dude what are you fishing like i'm marking them i'm not getting bit and he goes uh-huh, i'm fishing a green mackerel i had two you know I threw them on, and sure enough, we started catching them. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So you start out with two different colors, you get a bite, you get two bites to yeah. nothing, then it's time to switch out the color. Yeah, usually I'm like a, a two to three bite. If yeah. I get three bites on one color, then it's like no, yeah, you get, yeah, yeah, you got to figure it out now. Yeah. Two, two. I don't know. It's like that one thing. One, one's luck. Two's coincidence. Three's a pattern. Yeah. You know. For so sure. I don't want to prematurely uh, switch things out either. And then I did also notice too, like the later in the day it got, and I think this is general with like any kind of fishing, uh, like my afternoon trips, uh, I would I would probably forego the purple and go with brighter colors. Brighter colors. Um, I know pink, hot pink was actually a hot one. You know, it was pretty good. And I had this sweet, I think it was a, a little Yozuri. It was a little little Yozuri crystal minnow, mm -hmm. but it had a big diver lip. So it got down yeah, like about 15 deep feet. Deep crystal minnow, yeah. Yeah, and um, it had a purple, a purple, I mean, sorry, a pink back with like a wicked night. You know those colors and those Yozuris on the side, like how they like the, uh, it's like uh, almost like rainbowish color, how mm -hmm. they, just how they look, the prism. And that thing was killer on the bright, bright, bright days. That was that was the one. You had to change the hooks on them. You catch one fish, they get all blown up. So I set a fish, I switched them out and put singles on, you know, and that seemed to do a better job. A little more stuff. of a subtle profile for the high sun conditions and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. And they could have been on sand eels too, mm, you know, which is sure. another thing, for you know, sure. especially like around the slack tides around us, those sand eels kind of pop up and you yep. start seeing the clouds of bait in the bottom. You know, and little maybe some butterfish are probably kicking around there too. Mm -hmm. Just little baits. Whereas, like in the morning, you'd have more of the mackerel inside. Yeah. I mackerel mean, there were so at first light. There are so many days this, this year that we were going mackerel fishing in twenty five feet of water off the beach, and then just fishing them there. That's awesome. Yeah, that's like awesome. you were getting enough to fill your tank rather than going, you know, six miles somewhere else or something. Yeah, that was after a day of not finding them anywhere, but then you go inside and they're everywhere. The mackerel. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> well, I know when I was. Came here first. It's actually kind of a funny story. We were out, um, you know, we'd be going mackerel fishing at one point in the year, and it was so frustrating. You go up to a spot right away, you get two sabikis, and then nothing for 20, 10 minutes. No kidding. And then you go move like a quarter mile, same thing. You get 10. Your buddy would call you, hey, I just pulled up. I got some over here. And then That's frustrating. And you go over there, and then like, ah, oh, done. So instead of messing around for an hour, we would get like our, I don't know, say I'd get 15 mackerel. I'd throw out the trolling motor. We'd slow troll planer boards and uh, fish six of the mackerel out there i'd have two on plane of boards two on weights two unweighted or something like that out back and then i just throw two sabiki rods and show those and dude it was crazy the sabiki rod would go off we get our mackerel and i would just let it sit there for a few minutes and all of a sudden boom planer board down line goes off with stripers no it kidding was, it was almost probably like about 40 percent of the time so the bass was falling around the yeah they were just mm -hmm. falling the mackerel pushing the mackerel around so yeah cool. it almost made me want to buy a dredge yeah. and pull a little fake dredge and I don't know why it wouldn't work. <laughs> I mean, my, my offshore striper troll right now looks like a south of the vineyard tuna, tuna spread for the most part. You know, 
and those planer boards are, are, are killer. Yeah, Absolutely awesome. killer. Like we, there's a lot of intel that floats around in the fishing community up here, and it's awesome to catch the fish when you know you hear about a bite and you go at it. But we were kind of talking about this earlier. There's, there's nothing better than when you come up with your own theory and your own plan, yeah. and then you execute it, and it, and it works. You know, it's uh, it's almost like you know you can go out and catch a 30, 40 pound fish. Like yes, that's awesome. But there are like 30, 35 inch fish that I've caught that have been like, wow, like, I, you know, it's kind of with my own theory together, my own baits, you know, looking at the weather, looking at this, looking at that, and then have it work out. And those fish are more memorable than some of the bigger ones I've caught. For sure. And it's great yeah. too having a network for me for having like you, Fallon, my dad, guys that are out there every day. And like we talk about the things that we do, like, oh, I tried this and it worked. And it's like, you know, for example, the I got these planer boards two years ago and these guys were all laughing at me, thinking I'm an idiot. And uh, yeah, you were a genius for doing but it. But then, uh, you know, Fallon came on the boat one day. Next thing I know, he had 16 like delivered to his house. <laughs> and then Dan got a couple and then my dad got a couple. And then now we were able to compare notes. So like we decided, you know, before I was fishing them with like light drags, you know, letting the fish hit. So you can drop pop, back to them. Pop it, let it run. But we were missing a lot. So then Fallon started playing around. He started fishing the drags locked up. And that that made the hookup ratio way better. Yeah. And at least at that point, it was like you either got him or you didn't. And a lot of times, if you didn't, you could like throw a sluggo out there and probably pick them up. A lot of times, the bass hit the planer board. I've had ones that, you know, one comes up on the mackerel, another one comes up and hits the board. Or if you stop the boat on the troll, they act as floats. Your lines don't get tangled. They, one day, me and Dan tripled up on 45, 45-plus inch fish. It was caught just two all. of us. We caught them all. One of them hit the planer board that was just sitting out there, and we just let that thing run while we got the other two in the boat and then dealt with that. Well, the whole theory behind it, even going into it, it just the whole thing made sense, right? Because, you know, here you are, you're slow trolling for bass, and you have a couple out there with a couple two-ounce egg sinkers. You have one ounce, like, you know, you're picking your depth. But for a while, it was the, the long line that was in the back, unweighted, that would be the only successful one. And when you have the ability to bring, you know, three or however many baits you have out there up to the surface, like, mm -hmm. that's three more bites you're getting. And that's like what the planer board allows that to happen. Right. Because you can't, you can't put three three surface baits in the back. It's just going to end up no. being an absolute shit show. And you go from covering eight foot six of width to yeah. 50, exactly. 60, 70 yeah. feet of width. Yeah, and mm -hmm. if your port side's constantly going off, like you're going to circle around that way, you know, maybe you'll get through the school, you'll get, you'll get more. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's an awesome, awesome way to fish. It's like you're fishing from three different boats. Mm -hmm. It really is. It really is. And then, like, you know, working in tandem with people like Deanne Fallon and my dad, you know, we can go out there and, like, you know, one of us could be in 60 feet, one of us could be in 80 feet, one of us could be in 100 feet. You got it covered. not even that, when I'm out, say, if I'm in 100 feet, I can have a planer board that I know is sitting in 110 and another one that's sitting in 80. You know what I mean? If you're fishing that hard edge out there, and then, okay, that, that one went off on the port side three times, so... I'm gonna adjust and maybe pull these in a little bit tighter and get, get my a tighter get my four main bait four main baits on that contour line. Yeah, and then that's when you start getting your doubles and your triples and you know circling on on really nothing no structure. I mean for me this year the big thing was tide lines and the same thing with the mackerel. It wasn't so much you know mackerel fishing for me has always been kind of structure and then the bass fishing out there you know focusing on some sort of structure but this year it was tide lines on on edges for sure you know those current changes clear water out in the deep so there is one issue with the planer boards that i think we could probably talk through right now and like just sitting here and thinking about it uh, i i i've always thought of it as a clip problem 
you know, like when they pop on their own, yeah, pop on annoying. their own. It's super annoying. And then, you know, you upgrade your clips and you have success for them for a little while. And then all of a sudden they're popping on their own, popping on their own. It becomes very annoying. What if, what if like with the, with the actual leader, the monofilament, you were to go a thicker diameter, you think that would be more effective with the clip? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, to be honest with you, I only had one planer board. No matter how many clips I put on, it kept popping. So I wonder if the arm got bent a little bit yeah, and there's a weird angle. Yeah, too much drag. Um, somebody, one of our members on the forum who fishes the, the who moved here in, in, from the Great Lakes was talking about planer boards, and we had a little side conversation on it. And he was talking about he puts an elastic on his main line and puts the elastic in the clip. Um, oh, like, okay. so give you a little bit more. Yeah, so a yeah. little thicker, a little beefier. So, but like also idea. the stretch. So yeah, the stretch. I mean, I did everything. Like I twisted it. I didn't twist it. I know Fallon would put the knot right in it, like the knot from your mono to your braid. And that's another thing too. Is like how far are you fishing it off your planer board? You know, I would probably put it anywhere between twenty feet. Like I would run a long shot of mono to like fifty feet. Um, if are I these was, fixed tension clips, correct? Yes. Yeah. Put kite clips on it. Yeah. Just yeah. put kite clips on it. That's all you got to do. That would probably be a good idea. Actually, when we were at Bass Pro the other day, I almost bought uh, some downrigger clips. That works, too. I was thinking yeah. about it, but I, I didn't pull the trigger. That's a good idea. If you just put the kite clips on it, that way you've got variable tension clips. Yeah. Oh, almost like uh, so you can dump line on it. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, also the kite clips, they have a tensioner in them. There's a little screw. There's a, there's yeah. a nut. Yeah. And if you just turn the nut counterclockwise, yeah. you, you adjust the tension in the clip. But aren't those more like rollers? Like it's not fixed? No, yeah. it's just a wire loop. It is. Okay, yeah. It's a wire loop that you run the line through for the kite clip. Gotcha. Yeah, oh, so what do you do? You, you twist it, right? You put the... I, not for the kite, you don't twist it, but okay. you could twist it and do it. Yeah, like you that. would have yeah. to twist it or do something to stop it. To from stop it from yeah, sliding. Yeah, stop it from sliding. Yeah, but yeah. that would do it, as would the downrigger clip. Yeah. But the, the kite clips are their variable tension. Yeah. yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah. See, I knew we would talk so about we'll, that. So we'll play around <laughs> with that, that's for sure, because those things are were just such a good thing to throw in the boat. And something that, I mean, we had a night on the flats, like the one good day of fishing oh, on the awesome. flats. That was unbelievable. So we were fishing planer boards in three feet, four feet of water on the flats. Well, when you're in the flats, Murking it's also helpful fish. when you're the only boat there trying to yeah. do that. It doesn't yeah, really if there was, it was, it was dusk, you know, yeah. so there yeah. wasn't many boats. There was a couple boats there. And again, the other thing, too, that's a huge advantage with those uh, planer boards is the trolling motor. Cause I was just going to say, like, honestly, when you started talking about the flats, like I just I closed my eyes for a second and I could just hear the trolling motor and then nothing else <laughs> and then the, yeah because it was all about the trolling motor it really was well that's the thing it's just like silent, silent I know I know on my boat with my engine like really I'm lucky if I can get slow enough to like two and a half two point eight yeah but the trolling motor I can go point eight yeah mm -hmm. I can go point creeping eight. it just and what enough to get them out what there. I'll do I'll go like maybe two two and a half until I mark some fish on the finder on the side scan I'll be pop on a swirl one. And then once we're in that little area, I'll slow it down. I'll take it down to like pointing and really let those boat baits kind of hang. It's almost more like a controlled drift. But the other aspect of why I can fish six lines is because it's on autopilot. Yeah. You know, I just put a little course or just put my heading, go from there and make a track on my fish finder. And I just let it do its thing. Yeah. And I'm focused completely behind managing me lines. on the managing my lines making sure they're all looking good and on um, super windy days we were able to do this i mean yeah. probably my best day trolling out there i think we caught 14 fish commercial size plus our limit and keepers in a four-hour trip wow that's good fishing and even we even like we got some couple like 26s 27s like oh what are you guys lost out here and we were in like three foot windy chop in the middle of the afternoon 
but I wasn't taking my boat and having to turn it and do anything because you're getting pulled from the front. It's going exactly where I want to go. You know, the guys in the boat were just sitting in the bow, drinking beers, having sandwiches until fish hit. Right. <laughs> and just came right back. Loving life. Like, like having the trolling motor, being able to set the heading like that, it's so huge. It's like having another person on the boat driving for you, right? It's, it, it, it's, who it, drives it's better amazing. than you can. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah, it yeah. like actually keeps it on course, you know. Yeah, I've gone. I've gone on the boat with some people. It's just like just keep the boat straight. I look up. I go. Like, oh yeah, no, no you're, like, you're better off just not yeah. touching the wheel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is going on right now? That's interesting too with the flats. I would have thought that'd be a place specifically that would shine. Obviously, with the amount of distance you're covering, but an interesting thing, and I've heard this from two different people, and two very different fisheries. I have a very good friend of mine who who uh, fishes the Great Lakes, guides for steelhead in the winter. He, he trolls out in the, the big lake in the summertime, the springtime. Uh, and I fished for brown trout with him in the early spring. And the brown trout in Lake Ontario get in very shallow water, so maybe six feet of water off the beach or something like that. And these are big, you know, almost pelagic brown trout, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they troll planer boards. And one of the theories that they came out with is that they're they're pushing as they move the brown trout are pushing to the edges. They're pushing away from the boat. He's pushing these fish right into his lures. Mm-hmm. And another friend of mine who fishes for tarpon and guides for tarpon down south tells me the same thing. He also fishes planer boards. And he goes through areas with tarpon, and he'll mark the tarpon on a side scan, and they'll they'll bend away from his boat, and those tarpon are bending right into his baits. I, um, I've actually been wanting to do the plane and board things for a long time since before I had my bow mounted trolling motor on my Parker. So this is probably seven years ago. I actually got um, one of my buddies gave me a 55 pound thrust stern motor and I put a bracket on the back of my boat, but it was just enough. It was just enough to get me going like if I wanted to about a mile an hour and it kind of sucked because it was a stern so I had to drive it. But I wanted to fish the planer boards and those types of things on the flats. And um, it just it didn't work out because it was hard for me to set the lines while using that to control it. So I never really got a chance to do it as much as I wanted to to see if it would be super effective. But, like, dude, when that current's pushing out and there's, like, a two foot, like, one and a half, two feet of water on that edge. And you can throw that planer board onto that edge on the high spot with those fish that are flushing out deadly deadly because you can't get in there can't get in there you can't get in there if you get close to it you're, you're spooking the fish i can be 50 feet off of it and throw that planer board on top and with my other one i can get the ones that come off and drop off in the hole too you know so it, it it's if you think about where you're doing it and how you're setting it up there are times too like i'll fish because i got two sets i'll fish like two starboard ones for example and get them both on that high ground you know, and put two over there and focus my attention on that side. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a weapon. How money would they be at night on the beach too? When the fish are right in the, right in the wash. Right. I mean, Christ, I remember trolling eels back in the day at night, you know, unfortunately I don't get the opportunity to do that anymore. But if you weren't in that first crest of wave, if you were six feet outside of it, you didn't catch a thing. Mm -hmm. If your boat was rocking sideways, you were slamming them. You were slamming them. And the fact that you could put an eel or something on that planer board and put it right in a foot of water. Because how many times would you cast onto the sand, take two cranks, and a big fish would come up and you wouldn't believe it. You know, wouldn't believe it if I if I showed you. They're right on the beach. Right there. Right there. And it's just, it just made sense to me. And I just, you know, finally started trying around, playing around with them. And I've been, I've been happy with them. 
And I think even too, like you could throw something like this on there. All day. You could throw, I mean, half of that deep water trolling back in the day, we started catching when we were fishing for tunas, you know, on Stellwagon. You would catch how many huge bass out there trolling sluggos. Nuisance. And it's, they were a nuisance. And it's like, well, maybe they're in the deep water out here if we try that. And it worked. And then we just started doing it with mackerel. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the biggest fish I ever seen, I was with Pete Murray, and he was fishing a bird with a mackerel behind it. And I go, oh, and he never tuna fishes, right? And I'm just like, what made you do the bird? I'm like, because that's like, we fished that on Stellwagon. I was like doing it with sluggos for stripers. And he goes, oh, he goes, I don't know. I usually fish two lines, and I just wanted another line in the water, and I could see it, and it would float. So I put that one way back. And three years in a row, I caught my biggest fish of the year on, actually, believe it or not, a big pollock. No on kid. a bird in deep water. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I'm big Pollock, like fucking 15-inch Pollock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, oh, this is what we got. Let's right. throw them out there, you know? Yeah. And yeah, three years in a row. My so one of those fish. like Pigeon Hill special size ones. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. So, you know, you never know. It's really interesting. Just play around. Play around. Take play around. Looks. Have fun with it. There's no, yeah. there's no law, man. There's no law. There really isn't. Like, how successful were spoons for us this year? Oh, yeah. Particularly in the early year. Like, and it was super fun to fish with. Super fun. That, dude, how many times I got hit and I almost dropped my rod? It's like, they well, just come about it, right? You always talk about the transition into live bait. Now, you fish with a lot of the spoon produced really all year. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. It wasn't a time it didn't. Yeah, except for after I wrote the blog about him. I felt like I didn't catch one on a spoon for like three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> it's punishment for putting the secret out there. Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, especially like you as a captain, like I would see you too. Like you have people that have live mackerel out there, and then you have the spoon because what does it interfere with? Absolutely nothing. Well, you're like, vertical on it, right? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. that was the great part. If I had an op- if I had like a side on the boat, like especially if I was fishing three, when I was fishing four people, it was tough because they kick so much side to side. You like you can't drift and fish three spoons. Like it, it's just hard. They tangle with each other, and especially with live mackerel. But if I had like two or three guys and I had an opening on the side, I'd throw that spoon down and. Um, you know, if something happened, they caught a fish or they needed my attention, I could just reel it up and put it in a rod holder. Whereas, like a live mackerel, I'd have to pull it out. The thing would be swinging all over the place, and I'd take a second. You know, it was just dropping a live mackerel for me was a pain in the ass as an extra rod when I'm drifting like the mouth where it's rough and I got to drive the boat. But with the spoon, I can do it all one handed. Jig, 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 get it, pass it off. Yeah, I'll be the first to admit, I don't know who this Ben Parker guy is, but he had a great year. (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) And uh, weren't they hard to get a hold of too at some point? He was was pretty expensive. They're expensive. So it was like kind of like sourcing them to try to find find the cheapest distributor possible. Yeah. And actually, probably think their website was probably the cheapest way I think I found. Um, But the thing was like Amazon, you got it the next day. You know, yeah. the Ben Parker ones, you had to wait a little bit. I got a uh, Jigging World ones for this year because they came, they were four and a half ounces, single J's instead of the trebles because those trebles were ruthless. I bet. Ruthless. And they were small trebles too. Which Well, the- there was two. You can get a saltwater one. Yeah. And that hook was so diesel J, I could my pliers couldn't even like grab them to get them out of the fish. <laughs> yeah, you really, like it, overkill for a tuna fish. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And the saltwater ones didn't come with the tassel. And what I found with the saltwater ones without the without the hair on it um i was getting a lot of strikes that weren't converting into hookups and i think they were hitting the head of it or just hitting the spoon somewhere along the spoon and the freshwater version had thinner hooks 
but they bent out a lot because we were catching a lot of big fish on them. They rust out fairly quickly. And they did rust out very quickly, which was annoying. Fallon actually took some 4 out VMCs and tied uh, some shackle on it, and those were nice. So I swapped them all over to that. They lasted longer. They're easy to get out, and they didn't bend. But So I got the Jigging World, which has a J-hook and the feathers on it, Perfect. and they were cheaper. And I can get them an ounce and a half heavier, yeah. which is really the only times when I was just like, man, they're just not getting down fast enough. They're fishing. They're okay to fish at an angle, believe it or not. And fishing them at an angle is okay. They don't have to be completely vertical. But, you know, we're fishing in three-knot current sometimes, yeah. and it just wasn't feasible. You had to wait for those slower current tides for them to really be effective. Um, so I'm hoping this year with the heavier ones, we could fish some of that faster current a little more effectively. So, And I didn't really find, did you find any difference in any colors? No. I mean, I caught them on white, gold, hammered, silver. The herring one was good. I bought a chartreuse one. Yeah, the shattered glass herring. Yeah, that was probably, that was probably the one I threw the most. So, you know, it's easy to say that was the one that was the best. You know how that goes. Well, but. I feel like the, I don't know, I, I like the shat, the shattered glass over like the, the regular just smooth spoon. Yeah. Because I feel like there's more light refraction. You know, it's a little bit more, it looks more like scales. Yeah, and going back to what we were talking about, the soft plastics and the lures, it had those little ridges. I think maybe it made the little vibration a little bit more mm -hmm. in the water. For sure. For sure. That comes off a little different. Correct. Yeah, it just hits different, you know. So spoons are a great example of the first thing we talked about, man. All a lure is is a surface through which water moves. Mm -hmm. Spoon's a great example of it. That thing's a kite. That's yep. all it is. Yep. Yeah. Just a kite in the water moving around. The water is part of your presentation. Mm-hmm. And you know, you go back and we're talking about the effectiveness of hard baits and like sometimes, like for instance, like a jumping minnow, right? Jumping minnow, great lure. Yep. I probably caught more bass on that stupid little thing than anything else. Deadly. Big, small, and different. Yep. Deadly. But fishing in strong current suck dude really they, do they, they don't do anything and they look like shit and like a lot of the times like you know for fishing the edge of a chance for fishing like deep into the flats and calmer water deadly but even on that same trip you move 100 yards out into the current a little bit more they're not as effective because the current's rolling them over they're not pulling right um so then a lot of times i'll switch to something else like um in that situation the nomad was a great lure um for that situation they were a little bit heavier and they had more angles on them so they caught the current a little bit better um what was the the riptide the riptide floater yeah was was a good one for me and um the other one um you know danny plugs too worked pretty well in that situation you know, especially when I see herring getting popped, you know, and they transition, you know, you, they're on sandy as a little glass bay. Then all of a sudden you see like five inch herring getting blown up. It's like, oh, Danny plug, I'll throw it over there. And, uh, they're, they're another, another lore that's never really talked about up here. Super deadly, man. Yeah. Super deadly. I fish them a lot. Still fish them a lot. I mean, I've, I've, I do really well with Danny plugs in, in the herring areas. Yeah. In the springtime. I'll fish Danny's and Huddleston's and that's it when there's yeah. herring around. Yeah, because they look like herring. Like the the water, the way they displace water displace looks like a herring scooting across the top of the surface. Displacement, man. I it's so funny you mentioned this displacement, right? So in that spot I tell you about in the springtime, I like to go. Yeah, uh, I was there one night and I was fishing with a friend, and the fish were crashing all in the middle of the the current, the marsh edges. Basically, once you got two hours into the dropping tide, like you were talking about how the herring were up in the marsh grass. Mm -hmm. Well, the bass were on the lip, the first drop off yep. of the berm, right? Yep. And so once that water got sufficiently low, the herring got flushed out of the grass and they got dropped in and the bass were there. And then you start getting your feeds, right? So one night I was there with a buddy and I'm fishing all kinds of different stuff and I could not buy a bait. And he's fishing a six inch Danny. 
right? And he is crushing them. So eventually, I go everything in my bag, including different sized Dannys, all kinds of crap, right? And couldn't get a bite, couldn't get a bite, couldn't get a bite. And then finally, he just gives me another one of the ones he had, and it was just, it was, you know, not every cast, but it was definitely figured out what they wanted, right? The next day I go there, and the night before, it was really kind of calm. It was a steady weather pattern. There was nothing wrong. The following night, we had a, a warm front come through, so it was raining, and it was mm. windy. And they would not, they were doing the exact same behavior. They wouldn't eat the six inch, but the exact same plug, one model bigger. So the eight inch, they were crushing it. And here's what my theory is on this, is that all, all there's no rattle in it, right? There's no kind of any mm -hmm. kind of action. There's no knocking in it, right? So what is it putting out? And the light conditions are the same. In fact, you'd think even with a darker night, it wouldn't really matter that much, you know, because it wasn't the night before we had cloud cover. So it wasn't like we had full moon, dark moon, you know, whatever. So the only variable could have possibly have been displacement, right? Mm -hmm. And what was going on in the situation the night before it was calm. There wasn't a lot of ambient noise. Mm -hmm. So your displacement was being picked up far easier. The night later, raining, winding. So we got the noise of the rain hitting the water. We have the wind disturbing it. We've got little baby white caps and foam. And so there's a lot of ambient noise in the water that is not just the noise itself, but actually the displacement and the vibrations in the water are different. And that bigger plug that put out a larger waveform, they crushed it like they did the night before on the smaller one. And that was really eye-opening for me on the difference and the differentials in your, your waveforms and your different presentations in that regard. That was my big aha moment when I really began to really understand and deep dive into displacement. And it makes total sense, too, because like when we're fishing choke points in the river with strong current, a lot of times like you know, you'll get that little chop on the water yeah. or like the whirlpools, like lots of noise, things running on rocks, and we'll fish like big uh, big pencil poppers. Yeah. You know, really making them splash and making them work. But in that same day, you know, if you slide up and you're in calmer water and the little, you know, the little eddies that come off the side and the mooring fields along the edges, you might transition more to a spook. You know, something a little bit slower, pushing the water chill. slower, a little more chill. And you're still getting that displacement, but it's like that spook doesn't work as well in that turbulent water. Right. Because it's just not throwing. I mean, unless it's like a dock or something like right. that and you're really chucking it and working it. But, you know, things like, um, I don't know, like Gibbs or something like that or... Um, what else? What other kind of spooks? The hoagie one was pretty good. There's a mm -hmm. charter special there, charter glider, whatever it's called. So, but um, like I said, most of the time nowadays I'm fishing soft plastics and just playing around with those. So, because they, they are like, you know, I got to switch over four lines every time I want to move. You know, if I move 100 yards over here, it's a whole different situation. Right. You know, so you want to be able to swap them out quick. Yeah. You know, a lot yeah, of times, versatility. Too, a lot of times too, like I might start off two guys on small jig heads with six inches and two guys on nine inch on weighteds and see which one they want, you know, depending on where I'm fishing. Those have different fall rates, all kinds of different yep. stuff. Yep. Yep. And sometimes it's the Indian, not the arrow, you know, so you got to play around with that too. Jay, but do you use the technical angle clips? I do. Yeah, yeah I do. Yeah. Yep. I saw the uh, the new BKK ones. I, I keep bringing them up. I don't know. <laughs> the new BKK ones that I like, I think I'm going to give them a shot this year. They're more, uh, uh, they got a wider opening. Okay. 
Okay, they like almost look like the claw from uh, you know those yes, those games yeah, that you yeah. play, and as opposed to the tactical anglers, which like the paper clips, because I have a hard time with some of my bigger lures. Yeah, getting they those don't. On. They, yeah, yeah. So I think I might give those a shot this year, see what they're like. But that's just a little tidbit, a little bigger opening, quick swap, fluorocarbon yeah. savings too, man. That that's the thing. That's why I use it more than anything. I mean, half yeah. the time I could probably tie the knot just as quick as long as it takes me to take it off and put one on. Right. But you know, if I want to switch out a lure five times in a trip. You know, I can't be cutting back fluorocarbon and retying all yeah, the time. It gets too expensive. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. So. But those little fluorocarbon tags have a purpose, too. If you start tying direct, like with your sluggos, and you want to keep your sluggos alive longer, take your fluorocarbon tags, like 30 or 40, cut it on a 45-degree angle, mm-hmm. peg the eye of the hook into the nose with the fluorocarbon tag. So if you put the eye of the hook into the nose of the sluggo, yeah. right, if you tie direct, yeah. so your nose is inside the sluggo, Mm-hmm. Take your 30-pound piece of fluorocarbon, peg it. So push it through the top of the fl- soft plastic and down the bottom and have the fluorocarbon go through the eye of the hook as well. Yeah. Right? So now you've pegged it into place, into place. in the nose of the sluggo. Yeah. And it won't tear anymore. It'll keep it alive longer. And the big one for that, get a bottle and mend it before your season starts. Yeah, because you can keep those sluggos alive, those ones that split up top. You can use them forever. You, use them, you really can. You yeah. really can. My, I've got a bottle of mend it. I haven't bought a bag of sluggos in three years. Because yeah. I get home from fishing, get my mend it, and I fix all my plastics, and then they're good to go again. Dude, I left the bottle on the top of my dash, and it felt, well, I didn't really leave it at first, but it just fell over. Yeah. And the cap wasn't on, and I went to go take it off at the end of the day, and it was stuck. <laughs> and I had, had to fucking spray Classic. it down. <laughs> Classic Chris. Classic messy Chris. <laughs> oh, man. I can't. So what? I'm trying to think of, like, what else? I mean, I know there are days, like, you know, we've been messing around like haddock fishing. And we'll throw like a white sluggo on a, on a hook and throw it down there. And, yeah, they'll work. They crush it. Right? They'll, they'll work. <laughs> it's crazy. Everything eats a soft bait, man. What I really want to do, and uh, I say this every year and I haven't tried it yet, is uh, kind of like drop shotting them while we drift in the mouth. Like that will work. For that sure. will totally work. You know, like a little three-way rig. Just to see if they work though, those days. You know, maybe they don't want a mackerel. Maybe the fish move off when the tide slacks out in the mouth a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So it, it kind of depends. Um, every day is a little bit different, mm-hmm. but kind of the pattern is um, there's there's a few little holes in the mouth, like towards the slack tide, when you know at a certain time you can pound that hole yeah. and do pretty well. And then sometimes they'll slide off on the drop off that goes from like you know fifteen to thirty. Um, and it, it's just kind of hard to stay on them out yeah, there yeah. consistently. Um, sometimes they'll zip down and go a mile down the beach, you know, before the tide turns. Sometimes you could, sometimes like, uh, when the tide turns, you see that clear water coming in and you see the birds that go in on the, on the sand deals. They'll come in with that clean water. And you'll get them in the clean water. A lot of times on those, they're mostly schoolies, but if you get under them, you could pop off a big fish or two. Yeah. And the thing for me is when those birds are kind of going, that's more of a troll. I'll, I'll troll a little bit more in mm-hmm. that situation. And you have to be marking them or you have to see them. Like they won't, they won't actively be like feeding on top, but you'll see slurps. You'll see the swirls. You'll see the water get pushed underneath. And like, that's your telltale. Okay. This fish, the side scan's huge for that. Cause a lot of those times those fish are upper column and you can see them off to the side, those little patches and, you know, just work your troll over there. And, um, then as that tide kind of flows in, you can kind of go back into the river or on the beachfront, you know? So, um, it's definitely a transition period, but some days just sitting there and dealing with the slack 
and moving around to certain little spots in the in the mouth. Like I got like four spots, specific areas that I'll hit before I probably leave. Yeah. You know, just to make sure. And most of the time, I don't have to leave. Sometimes I'll just go outside. Um, I've had days where I'll do that and then go a mile offshore on a couple pieces of structure and just troll around a balloon out there for a little bit, you know, while that tide changes and I'll pick up some fish and usually pretty good ones out there. Um, I haven't done that consistently in a few years. And a lot of times in my trips too, the way they go for four hours, I try to time it. So I'm coming in at slack, Yeah, you know, as the tide gets moving, get the next one. So I haven't probably fished it as actively as I would like every day if I was just out by myself. So there's that part of it too. It's one of those ones that got me thinking about because there's so many kooky ways to rig stuff now, mm-hmm. especially with the stuff the Japanese have been doing. That they got this this one thing that I, I fished this year and I actually did really well early season in shallow water for schoolies with it. They call it hover strolling. Okay, <laughs> that's only the they two got the cool chat. names. Dude, they got the coolest names. What, how do they say that in Japanese? Uh, hover strolling. <laughs> <laughs> hover strolling. Like the... <laughs> so uh, no, that's just a, a racist accent. Actually, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's not Japanese. Actually, it's yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> so the hover strolling the technique it's a freshwater bass technique that they use on fish that are suspended and negative or just off the bottom kind yeah of deal, right um so you take a any kind of straight tail bait right okay. so they use like little minnow shaped baits that they're kind of you know straight tail whatever so like a sluggo would work great for this and they get a 90 degree jig hook so okay. like a blank jig hook before you pour a mold around it okay okay and that goes in hooked through maybe a third the insertion point of the, the hook We'll go maybe a third of the way through the bait yeah, and bringing it out so that when it's rigged, your jig eye is pointing straight up, but it's maybe a third of the way back in the bait, okay? Okay. So eyelet. So if it's showing you here on the bait, right, that's where your exit point would be. Okay. For your eye. That's where your line tie is. It's like a third of the way into the bait. Okay. okay? And then the hook is coming up, you know, further back. There, you put in a nail weight or... If you look at some of the stuff the freshwater bass guys have now, they got straight up jig heads on nails with barbs on them. Now. Yeah, I've seen those. Yeah. So that what they use that they for. They use those for Nico rigging or they I've heard use that. It. Nico yeah. rigging, yeah. yeah. They'll use it for that or whatever. So those are more applicable for us because we use bigger stuff. So it can carry a bigger weight. And it's almost like an artificial stick bait or yo-yo rig. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm envisioning now because the exit point is on the top third of the bait rather than the front. And you're balancing it out with that big weight, with that weight Correct. up front. Yeah. So you don't want to go crazy heavy with it because you'll turn it into a jig. You don't want. You so want that neutrally buoyant going straight up You're balancing it out. Yeah. You want something that will hold the head when you're retrieving Correct. it. And apparently it sinks in a big spiral. I was going to say. Yeah. Those old gitsits used to do, those uh, the tube jigs that were so deadly for the freshwater bass guys. They loved so much. They loved them because of this big sweeping spiral that they would take to the bottom. So it does that, which is a famous and popular action in freshwater bass. But also when you're cranking it in, I mean, this thing is just swimming and seeking and meandering around, suspended a few inches off, I mean, suspended wherever you want it but a few inches off the bottom in application. Yeah. And when you want a super finesse presentation where like, don't mind me, I'm just a little bait fish creeping through the environment. <laughs> do, do, do. That's when it gets crushed. Like super calm mornings in the estuaries when I fish the flats. Yeah. I got a few flats that I'll fish in the estuaries that are skinny, man, like below knee deep because there are some areas that I really like to fish that during the pandemic, dudes found out there are a lot of fish there. And so all the places I used to like to go 
It's like I roll up and there'd be like four trucks there. And I've grown up fishing these places my whole life. Like I, maybe there's a two other dudes that you'll see the whole time you're there. Now there's like 15 dudes there. Yeah. So I was like, well, shoot, man. I, all right. Well, I got to spread out and start fishing some stuff that everyone would look past normally. Right. But 85% of an estuary fish's diet is ghost shrimp. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, grass shrimp. So they're eating those shrimps. They're not eating those shrimp on channel edges and fast water. They're getting up on the flats and they're nosing around at first light. Yeah. And that's a super skinny environment. It's a super subtle environment. Everything's quiet and calm in there. So you really want to be pretty sneaky. You want to be unobtrusive in those situations because those fish are sensitive. You know, if you start whipping something big and heavy displacement and everything else, it's going to freak them out. It's going to spook them. But they want something that's smooth and steady and snaking and meandering through there. And they'll pile onto it. I mean, I'm fishing for stripers that are tailing. You know what I mean? Really skinny water. And that's what that, that, uh, yeah, caught him on that little guy. I want to check it out. That sounds little, really cool. Sneaky slide, hover strolling. <laughs> Tell you what, I can't there. throw the Shasta bass thing on uh, on our new uh, rods that we got. The oh, tranks, yeah. the tranks, and uh, what do they got? TFOs, right? It's gonna be fun. I never got this is my first saltwater uh, bait casting. Sick. Yeah, I can't wait. You gonna get some Huddlestons for it too? Probably will now. Yeah. yeah. So sure. they got the the one I'd recommend is the sixty eight special. The sixty eight special. Sixty eight special, right? It's all whole thing. So the normal is the Huddleston eight inch. So they make like a, a twelve and eight and a six. And they all have different rates of fall. So ROF eight. ROF eight is what I use. Okay. Um, it's ideal for our speed of presentation mm-hmm. and depth of water that we fish. You know, m- most situations. Yeah. Right. Um, but what happened was is that guys were fishing other situations where they wanted a little smaller bait and they're fishing the six inch. And they weren't like drawing or catching any fish on them. They couldn't figure out why. But the eight inch, they'd draw fish to it, and it, but they wouldn't commit because there's smaller bait ambient probably. So they started the anglers, the pros, were cutting the tails off the eight inch and cutting the tails off their six inches and mending it, taking mend it and attaching the eight inch tail onto the six inch bait. Okay. So then they were created the 68 special. And Huddleston got word of it, and they just started making six inches with the eight-inch tail on them. So the 68 special is – that's the hot one for sure. Mm-hmm. And that's like a numbers bait. Like you can take a client out with yeah. it and catch a lot of it. You know, catch 25-inch fish on it too. That's that's the way to go. The eight-inch selects for for bigger fish. Dude, you got your phone on you? Uh, what yeah. do you guys pull, pull a picture up of one of these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The pull Huddleston it up, pull it up. 68 special. My phone's on the charger. 68 special. It sounds like a gun too. It makes it nice. It yeah. just sounds badass. It sounds badass. Dude, freshwater bass lure's got the best names. Well, you know, think about it too. I mean, everybody can bass fish across the country, across yeah, the world. Man. Like, there's so many anglers that have access to it. So obviously, a lot of innovation is going to come from there. Mm-hmm. You know, like Sluggles is one of them. I mean, like uh, these jigging spoons that I'm using, you know, right now came from freshwater bass. Um, what? Else? There's so many. There's so everything. many. Everything. Everything. Everything comes from that. Uh, the the dock was a musky lure. Right. You know. Yep. Oh. So they're not, they're not cheap either, huh? No, like twenty five bucks. <laughs> Thirty bucks. It ain't too bad these days. Mend it. Mend it's your best friend. <laughs> well, because you're paying you're paying plug prices for a soft bait, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So just get your mend it, and it'll have a life on it. Yeah. You know, you'll have it for a season. Yeah, yeah I like that. I'm gonna get a bunch of those now. <laughs> I think I might actually have a couple of these. I'm probably not going to get any early morning June bites because I, right now I don't think we're getting out of school to the 25th of June. So That's fun, huh? And that's without even any snow days. Dude. I know. Fishing in July. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, last year we got out pretty early. I think we got out at 12, so I got to do a lot of early morning fishing. So, unfortunately, Fallon's going to be taking a lot of those trips for me this year. Yeah, you're going to be at school getting pictures of 46 inches hand over fist. That's the fucking worst. It's not, it's not like it's the best time of the year either. It's not fun. It's not fun. And my friends are assholes. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're such assholes. <laughs> oh, dude, when I had my internship at the software company when I was at Bentley, all my buddies would be fishing on tuna boats all summer long. Oh, yeah. Sending me pictures of like, yeah, eight for nine today. Yeah. Hope you're having fun talking about software. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I actually know these Huddleston baits. I just didn't know the name. I've definitely seen them Those are the Huddlestons, yeah. And so there's a lot of lure companies that make the same tails. So would you do the the black gizzard shad or the green gizzard shad? Or what's the Pollock? Uh, I use the, yeah, I got the Pollock looking one that I use for the, uh, the Pollock looking one is what I use to look like herring, actually. Yes. Rainbow trout's great too. Yeah, my same fa- thing. My it's favorite color, like in general, my favorite color sluggo is a rainbow trout sluggo. Yep. Mm-hmm. Rainbow trout's just a great color. Dude, you know what's funny? I used to fish those quite a bit and I just haven't picked up any in a while. I saw him actually at Bass Pro when we were there the other day, yeah. right? And I was like, oh, damn, grab, because he was looking for sluggos. I'm like, grab these ones. Pick up an ocean sand eel. Yeah. It's, it looks, they have a lavender they have line lavender in them that, and I olive love, back. Like, the, and, those pink and olives and the light blues. Like, yeah, man, they just look like everything. Yeah. They look like mackerel. They look like herring. They look like eels. Like, it doesn't matter. Every single bait fish fly I tie that's not a small little schoolie fly. Yeah. Like my big bait fish flies, they all have lavender and pink in them somewhere. Yeah. Maybe it's a little bit, a few strands of flash. They all have yellow, lavender, and pink because every bait fish has yellow, lavender, and pink in it. I caught my biggest striper ever on a um, pink and light pink and light blue butterfly jig. Yeah. Yep. Every bait fish in the world has lavender, tan, yellow, and pink. Yep. They all do. Yep. Look at any 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 fish. Look at a striper. Yep. Striper has all those colors in it. Absolutely. Look, a fish scale is that color. I mean, this is the color. Look, moving around. These, these things, I, I can't get over. I've been playing with this shots debate for the last two hours. That, mine, that one's mine, too. Don't forget that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I put mine over there. <laughs> He's already hit it. <laughs> I, got a, I got a fresh shipment coming. I got some for you, too. I got another color coming. Ooh. So I got a new, I got custom color on the way from them. Ooh. Yeah. yeah I'm going to have to pick River up. herring. Did you fish with these last this? past season no. have you used them yet no i i i have the um mold the same baits from the same mold okay yeah and i've caught a lot of fish on them but uh, not that particular but not color. the shasta yeah. bass baits those look so dope shasta master shasta master yeah the tournament bass guys love these things yeah i can see why oh it's all it's great he he, he i follow his page and it's really funny he'll be like you know, he'll be showing his normal colors or whatever, and you know, usually like a macro shot of the head or something like that. And it's like pouring out the freshest pours for you, great anglers. Right? <laughs> I love this dude; he's so positive. And so, this will go by, go by, go by, and then like he'll show like some cryptic color that he won't expose or whatnot. And then like six months later, he'll be like, "Yeah, you know, eighty grand was won on the BASS tour on this. Yeah, and this is a color I was commissioned to make or whatever. You know, and it's." It's cool seeing that stuff, man. It's history. It's well, part of history. You know, another guy that's like that is like Murr from Strategic Angler. Like, what yeah. a great Facebook, Instagram follower that is right. because you just – I talked to him the other day, too. What a super nice guy. And, like, these guys who are artists just really put the time in to try out all these different colors. And some of the stuff they come up with is – absolutely gorgeous looks great and i'm sure they catch too you know what i mean you know you hear that old saying they catch more fishermen than fish but you know for some of these guys like that like they really put that effort to go that extra mile to get that bite and you know just looking at it like i don't understand why anything wouldn't eat that 
right now. Especially when you think about highly, like, I really like custom and designer stuff. All the stuff that I make for myself, I don't make stuff for myself that's, like, really good all the time. Correct. I make situational stuff. Correct. So the, it's really hard to get a mass-produced lure to work perfectly in those situations. Yeah, you're making stuff for yourself because you can't find it. 100%. 100%. 100%. And like the colors that you had on your baits, like I remember one of the striper ones I really liked was like a tan purple color. Like a yeah, tan, tan and pink. pink. Tan and pink yeah. was, with like the speck in it. It was one of the best overcast lures I've ever used. Yeah. If we had an overcast day, I would slay on that thing. And um, you know, even your 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 ballyhoo color was like that that light gray, smoky black. The, the half and, beak, yeah, half beak, yeah, yeah. It was, it was like a, a smoky gray, and smoky like, with fine green fleck, yeah, over a hard silver stripe, yep. and then and then like a milky, almost cream colored belly, yeah, with a, with yeah. a little different color belly. It wasn't a hard white; it was like a cream color, correct? Yeah, and like those two colors were just like you couldn't find them anywhere. Like, and you know, sometimes I'm like. A color guy sometimes i could just like think light or dark but um you know definitely when like you said in those situations ones that really throw off that extra shine that extra you know color change throughout the size just like a bait fish you know actually you're a fred archer guy you've read yeah. a couple of his books right and i remember in one of his books he was talking to um a buddy of his who designed freshwater lures you know again Bassmaster stuff and um this guy who designed the lures he actually painted the colors in reverse so he put the dark colors on the bottom and the light colors on top. And his theory behind it was that, you know, things are designed in nature for survival. Right. So the way a bait fish is designed, light in the bottom, so a fish looks up, can't really see it. But if you reverse that color pattern, and I guess he was wailing fish on it, but he couldn't sell them. Nobody would buy them because they looked silly. That's too funny. Right. That's why so, tarpon guys like dark baits. Yeah. Tarpon feed up, right? They feed up. Well, mostly everything does, you know? Yeah. You know? I, I tell you what, this year I probably fished, because I was always a big white guy, like, just in general. Yeah. Like, white just always seemed to work. But this year I was fishing a lot more darker colors. Yeah. A lot more darker colors, particularly before, like, 7 a.m. You know, my sluggos were dark. They were either, like, black, eelskin, Arkansas shine. My, my, I started getting some, like, gold chrome spooks and things like that and those were fantastic i love gold it's one of my favorite colors it's an underrated color the gold spoons like i'd fish early mm -hmm. in the morning at daybreak mm -hmm. pogies in or not you know cut some really nice fish on those you know and i just think the way that gold throws light and that those low light conditions is killer and actually one of the things like some of the old school cod guys like that used to come out in the party boats when i worked there they would fish like gold stingo jigs early and then once the sun came up they switched to silver interesting yeah that makes sense right yeah it makes sense when you think about it look at this man it's 2022 we got all the technology in the world you're ultra sounding bass 80 feet off your side and now what's you into copper spoons copper spoons yeah. <laughs> right that's crazy yeah it all it works fish are dumb it they don't works. know that this is 70 yeah. year old technology no no i mean it's a reason why that stuff has lasted so long you know, it's crazy when you're talking about that first bait, too, that was uh, made out in Ohio and those guys from Texas got a hold of it. And it's like, just think about the reach of like some that guy probably started in his basement, gave it to a few friends. Yep. It worked, gave it to a few friends. And all below, no behold, they're down in Texas and they're they're fixing it to do their their way. And right. this is like what in the forties and fifties, you said? Yeah, forties and fifties. Yo, guys, they didn't have Facebook back then. Yep. You know, it wasn't like, oh, they're fucking slam lures on this yeah. fish, go get a bunch today. They you were know? ordering things by Pony Express by magazine with a check. 
right with a p.o box to send it back to right they probably had cod's yeah yeah Yeah, man (laughs) like how would you even Mm -hmm. find that information out like back then they see it in a store somewhere they buy it right well the other thing too is the guys in texas they were fishing them in brush yeah so you needed something that could get into that brush yeah because there was no all all hard lures back then all hard lures couldn't weedless anything and exposed hooks that no one was no one was fishing rigging imagine me imagine me in the cream worm rep you're like hopping on the 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 710 to yuma right (laughs) seriously right with your briefcase full of soft plastics (laughs) trying to pitch them to every fisherman in there god what that'd be the best job ever <laughs> the best job ever that's a long train ride yeah. with no internet yeah. <laughs> no kidding right i'd be out of battery in two and a half hours yeah. oh man that's cool it's cool man it's cool how it gets around and you know the way the invention moves and all the displacement stuff and all the bass stuff and, and the japanese guys with what they're doing now have you seen all these ribbed baits that they're coming out with mm-hmm. the japanese now you know the kitex were an original version of that and now they got these bellows gills and the bellows slug, and they're super thin tube of plastic with these huge ribs around the it. Ribs, yeah. It's all displacement. That's yep. all that stuff is, and it's a small bait that gives a hu- gives an impression of something huge. Yep. So you have the calling power of a big bait, but you have the commitment of a small bait. I I've always thought that if I get follows or I get interest but refusals, you can never err by going smaller. You can Correct. always err by going bigger. Correct. You know, I'm the same way. Yeah, like a bunch of refusals, drop it down. A drop little it bit. down. They're gonna eat it. Drop it down a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when they're on small bait. P- fish. Every time people are like fish or picky, I, that immediately transmit translates in my brain. They're on little bait. Exactly. You know, we have such an ecosystem where they could be on that really small bait, all that really big bait at any given time, and just anyway. Sometimes I look, especially like mid season July, when I'm not really fishing that much artificial stuff and i look inside my my tackle box and i just got like seven or eight 3700 deep trays stuffed to the lures with like every lure but it's like god forbid i take that off and one day i'm like oh man i really wish i had mm-hmm. those pencil poppers right now oh i wish i had that my box of big spooks or oh i wish i had my sp minnows this would be perfect yeah so they just live there and take up space because i know like it happened this year a couple times um we got to some like top water feeds in the middle of the day totally unexpected and then crushing fish on sp minnows yeah you know yeah and the shikaris i i had a i had a year where Tuna, uh, started guiding for tunas and uh i had been on fish that were on mackerel so and we were these were surface fish so we were throwing at them and it, for like four days straight it was mackerel 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 but it was the time of year the little herring start to push offshore mm-hmm. and i went one night before a trip i went to dicks and i got a bunch of like half ounce three quarter ounce metals and i put them all in a box and i was like i don't know the day that they're going to be on the little herring but they're coming eventually i'm gonna bump into them and if i don't have this on the boat i'm not catching any fish i had it in my car i didn't drink my coffee in my house and i went to the boat i left it in my car when i went down to the boat that morning and that was the day that they were on the baby herring was the day i left the box that i specifically went out to get oh yeah was the night the day after oh yeah you know and of course i'm there i'm like all right yeah sweet they're on little herring like all right (laughs) and then i look at all my stuff and i'm going through my console and i'm like Oh, and then the F word could be heard all the way to Saskatchewan. No, you can't let them know. <laughs> Just tell them, yeah, no, I've never yeah. seen this before, guys. This is a weird behavior. Just keep casting. Well, let me, you let know what? Know. I got a gripe about crippled herring right now because we went down a couple of weeks ago off of P Town, and uh, 
and they're on small butterfish, right? Yeah. So, you know, we're up here. There's no place to go to get butterfish imitation. So I figured, you know, two ounce crippled herring, one ounce crippled herring would do the trick. Right. Dude, we get out there. I go to Cass, and I'll show you my, my crippled herrings. All the silver ripped off. What? It was white. Yeah. What? It was like patchy white. It was like they had a foil on it. It wasn't like metal like they used to be. Dude, I literally dropped like 40 bucks on, oh. on crippled herrings and then more on the split rings and hooks that I put dude. on. And I was just like, dude, this is like just ruined my whole day. That sucks. Dude, I put another one on and it got beat up in the tackle box. I'm like, what is going on? Oh. So I almost want to write them a letter and at least get my money back. Yeah, write them a nasty so grant. upset. That sucks, dude. They man. look so beautiful, like in my palm, in my hand. I was yeah, like playing with them at night. They started turning white. The eyes are falling. Yeah, the eyes know. fell out. I'm just like, on? oh, come on. What happened? I don't know. I was I not. Missed, I missed I, the good old chrome, man. Yeah, it was a regular chrome one, and it. it I don't even know why they would do it. It was almost like it was a like a paper cover, like not paper, but like it was like a foil or Changed something. Change the manufacturing it, process. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, what the hell? Dude, how many lures have been ruined by a change in manufacturing? Oh, process? so many, man. Yeah. So many. The, remember, so back in the day when I was real young, the Atom Poppers. Yeah. Remember those? Yes. Those were f- awesome bluefish striper lures. And then all of a sudden they changed. They made out of like a, I don't know what they were made out of before, but they were heavy. They were really, really dense. Yeah. And you really had to work them to keep them up in the water to get them to splash. Yeah. And then they started selling them at Walmart. And you could tell, you could pick one up, an old one and a new one, and they were completely different. Different density plastic. Different density plastic, and they just didn't fish the same, so I don't buy them anymore. But that was, like, the go-to back in the day when I was, like, 10 years old, 11 years old. Like, we used to fish those a lot. Um, I wonder if Berkeley's going to switch up the Magic Swimmer. Screw that one all up. Yeah, because we saw that at Bass Pro. Berkeley Magic Swimmer is no longer the... uh, Sabeel. The Sabeel. Yeah, Pure Fishing bought Sabeel a long time ago. Yeah, a long time ago, but now they actually branded them as Berkeley. They weren't doing that for a while. I think they were still calling them Sabeel. I think. I don't know. That was no, the first were, time I've yeah, seen it. I bought a couple of them all. I bought a couple of Well, yeah, because Dude, they're, their little Magic Swimmer, I got one a few years ago, like the little like five-inch one, mm-hmm. was an absolute schoolie killer. I was fishing them on my trout rod yeah. with like like 10-pound like braid. Schoolie you know? assassin. Yep. Yeah, a little 6 to 12-pound rod. Fish every cast. Fish every cast with those things. They were awesome. They were, and we caught some keepers on them, too. They were, they were great. They probably do a great job of mimicking those baby ocean those, herring those baby herring yeah, yeah. it was they, they got worked they got absolutely murked um i've also had pretty good luck too for, especially for how little i fished them um those daddy mac swimmers yeah the, yeah. the jointed ones yeah. like i've trolled them yeah i've trolled like some days i'd be like out of bait like the last few minutes i'd be like oh let's try trolling these on our way in and like we'd get a couple of fish like every time it was crazy so yeah, well, the, the, those baits are the type of bait that you'll see like at the show that thrown in the tank. Yeah, and you can just see how real it looks when it's swimming. I know, yeah. I know, but I just bought one just because I was like, I think I have like a gift certificate to like Bass Pro. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'll try one of these stupid I'll things. Get one of these things. Yeah, the they Alibaba work. specials. Yeah, what's that? The Alibaba specials. Yeah, exactly. And they work. Right? Yeah, man. So I don't know. I'll never forget when I was a kid though the the, the infomercial. I used to watch that infomercial for the flying lure, like it was nobody's <laughs> business. I don't think I caught a single fish on the flying lure. I like the flying lure. Dude, the banjo yeah. minnow. Slaves. The fact that I never got one for Christmas, and that's the only thing I asked for, I yeah. don't know why I, my parents never got me one. They should have criminal charges brought up against them for that, dude. dude. Those things are awesome. Dude, my buddy Eric Slater got one when we were in fifth grade, and he calls me up on Christmas morning, you know, back on the house phone. Chris, Eric's on the phone. What's up? Hey, bud, guess what I got? What? 
a banjo minnow. Hang on a second. Mom, Dad, you let Eric, Eric go to banjo minnow? What the hell? I've wanted one for years. My dad's like, oh, it's a gimmick. Right? So then we went to his house, and, you know, it was like they had the whole kit already for you. They had all the hooks, oh, yeah. the rattles, the different colors. It was like 30 bucks, and we thought it was, like, crazy expensive. Like, we should we should do that. They should have, like, little sluggo kits, like, that you just get with everything all together. That'd be sick. Put them together? Yeah. And get one of the tackle shops to sell them all together. Right? Yeah. That's actually a good idea. More yeah, money in little it. bundles. We do that, like, when we do the raffles at the Mouths of the Merrimack um, flea market. Like, we try to make yeah, up. Try as to pair everything Yes, we try to pair things. that Like, we'll make a little, like, uh, we'll make, like, a little uh, rubber kit, you know, with we'll a couple sluggos, a couple uh, jig heads, a couple hooks, you know, just here you go. That's everything you need for your soft tackle gear. You yep. know, people get them in the raffle or whatnot. Or, like, we'll do, like, a herring kit and make everything kind of look like herring mackerel kit. Like, you know. Here's what you need. I do that. For, actually, that's what I do for, like, stocking stuffers for my mom and dad. Like, yeah. Because they go on the boat a lot. Put together some gear for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, for my father, like, this year, I just got him, like, a pack of swivels, a pack of hooks, and spool fluorocarbon. Like, they had, there's your live bait stuff for the year. Yep. Merry Christmas. Yeah. Filthy animal. A 506E mixed flashers. So oh, 506 so expensive actually <laughs> um i cleaned out the bass pro uh uh sabiki rigs the other day when we yeah, went yeah because uh, they had the right size and like the ones i used to get because i go through them like crazy like I, I put a new one on pretty much every other day at this point and, yeah and and the ones i used to get were like a dollar a piece you get a pack of 12 for 12 bucks or 10 bucks or whatever and they were solid they caught really well they lasted for a while but they don't make them anymore they were the old marathons i believe okay yeah yeah and uh, for, i can't find them in like the bundles anymore and so we went to bass pro and it looked like pretty much the same thing just rebranded and they were like a buck 50 or two bucks a piece perfect so i literally just grabbed the rack and put it i don't even know how many got i have literally a bag yeah. and uh when i go to buy them like i never buy anything for bass pro i get everything local but dan had a gift card and we took his dog up there. It was a fun day, by the way. Thank you first, for inviting yeah, me. First picture of my kids with Santa. That's awesome. Great. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. They finally weren't scared. <laughs> <laughs> but I go to check out, and the guy's like, "Oh man, we're gonna have to put another order in for Sabiki." So I'm like, "Let me know because I don't have enough. I need double this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> double. I'll be up here. That's awesome. Not going through as many as you though. I just swear by those abuses. Just mm -hmm. awesome, super razor sharp. Ones. Yeah, that's what you say. That's the big yeah. one. The big one. The five hundred six. Five hundred six E. Right. Five hundred six E mixed flasher slash turn. Yeah. Yep. Yep. The the pink and pink and green mixed colors. Pink, here. green, white. Yep. yep. Awesome. Killer. Killer. With I a Ronzi on the bottom of it. You know what Fallon was doing, that sick son of a bitch? Because when we were fishing with the spoons early in the year, yeah. so we'd be drifting the mouth, testing them out like in May. Oh, you were with me one day. Yeah. And we were slamming mackerel in yeah. the mouth on the spoons. Yeah. So Fallon, being Fallon, goes on eBay, gets like little one ounce spoons, like in the same shape, and he would take them, you get two and glue them together. And that was the bottom Smart. of the Sabiki. He thinks Smart. he got spooled by tuna twice out there. No kidding. Yeah. Wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Yeah. So we had the little he had the little flutter spoon on there. So I was gonna say if you guys had a troll fishery, those friggin' spoons on a planer would just absolutely annihilate those yeah. tunas. Those are so I think you were saying, was it you that was talking about trolling them? Yes. The spoons. Did you ever try it? No, I didn't. On a planer, absolutely. They're yeah, not I like bunker spoons. Think like like what you're thinking, but I don't see why they wouldn't work. I caught fish on wax wings off of planters. Yeah, wax wings are fucking dope, dude. I used to have a couple real big ones. That's what they, I pulled behind the planters. There was a year where 
we'd have some fish on the outside of our north jetty on that turn of the tide in that clear bahama water we call it yeah you know you get like chalky milk brown water in the river and you go 50 feet on the other side of the jetty and it's crystal clear super clear 20 feet down. Bay water, yeah. and those wax wings were crushing it and then i don't think i've caught a fish on them since they were great for like three weeks I don't know. I don't think I've even fished them since. I got to actually, now that I think about it, I want to get a few more. But I did get a couple big ones because I had a um, a downrigger with a, um, what did they call it? It wasn't a ball. It was the, the Z-Wing. Oh, the Z-Wing, yeah. And I wanted to fish for tuna with that behind it yeah. as opposed to an X-Wrap. You know, we actually caught a tuna off the downrigger on an X-Wrap. Yep. Yeah, one yep. day in the southwest corner. That planer, man, I fished that planer for three years responsible for 60 percent of my bites yeah yeah i mean when i wasn't fishing south of the vineyard or something but out east of the cape or up on the bank that planer was 60 percent of my fish came off that planer either i usually would be a ballyhoo yeah um, but if i you know did you put a skirt on and naked yeah i usually had a joe shoot ahead of it um sometimes it'd be naked yeah Uh, i just you know i didn't trust my rigging that well you know how'd you fish the planer did you have it tied up to a cleat or did you in line in line and so you're talking harness. about the planer boards different than the ones we were talking about for striper fishing earlier. He's talking about the vertical planer boards that go down. Correct. As opposed mm-hmm. to out. The yeah. offshore train, uh, planers. They're Pla- metal with a lead in the front of it. Yeah. And they have a ring on uh, ring that slides on a, on a thing. Yeah. And what I would have is I would have a harness in line. So I would have... Oh, so you inline rigged it? Yeah. yeah. So I'd have yeah. a... I had Jerry Brown Decade on Correct. an 80. Yeah. Right? So I fish it on a, on a bent butt 80. Um and I would have my top shot, so I'd have my 100-yard top shot, and then in between, my, my top shot would be rigged to a, a bridle. So it would be basically spliced Jerry Brown with two loops into it and a swivel on each end. Yeah. So one end would go to my top shot, and one end would go to my reel, and which was just straight braid. And then I had a size 32 planer. And I had two. Ooh, yeah, that thing must have pulled, huh? That's the reason I was fishing yeah, 80. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that 80, I was th- 32 pounds of drag. Was yeah. what you needed at five knots. It's yeah. thirty-two pounds of drag to keep it from creeping. Wow. Um, yes, yeah, serious stuff. I mean, sometimes you know, sometimes the planter would be pulling harder than the fish that would eat it. Yeah. Um, so then I have two shackles coming off of the planter. So on one end of the shackle, I would have uh, coming off the rear end of the planter, and then a shackle coming off the ring, and that would go get clipped onto the bridle. So that would then be put down, and with the Jerry Brown decade. Every ten yards, you get a color change, right? Mm-hmm. So it was it was uh, and on a forty five degree angle is how the planter moves. Okay, so I would just back it off and let it go, and I scratch and fish at fifty feet or whatever. I'd just set the planter to forty, and so that would be ten feet above where I'm getting my marks. And yeah, I want look them, it up. They're feeding up, right? So I just set it like that, forget it, and put it in there. And the way that it operates is that when a fish eats and comes tight. That ring will slide down from the trolling position here into the front, and it'll trip it, and there'll be no resistance on it. So you'd be tight to fight your fish as soon as you as soon as you get bit that way. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, you get the planer up, you unclip it, drop it in a bucket, and then you're direct to your fish to finish your fight with the fish. Yeah, because the the alternative to that is like taking like heavy mono or like a rope and putting it on the rope and tying it off to a cleat. Yeah, right? poor man's downrigger. Poor man's downrigger. And, you know, like, I know guys do, like, rubber bands with shower curtain rings, for example, and send it down right. there. But then you get a deal with getting the planer out of the water while you're fighting the fish. I actually, I think, I think I had, or maybe I borrowed for Fallon's once a couple times. And it was more of a pain in the ass doing it that way with, with it coming off the, coming off the uh, cleat. 
then it was worth it. And then I actually had the downrigger the next year, my first boat, and we caught some fish in that downrigger. We caught we trolled for sharks and at least caught some blue sharks. That's which awesome. Was interesting. That's a is a data point. Yeah, exactly. we were trolling pogies for for blue dogs, and we were catching them. You know? Perfect. We weren't looking for them, but right, it was You're something we were getting them. Look it. I would like to do more of that, especially with the amount of makos that have been kind of kicking around, for sure. They're coming back pretty good, huh? Yeah, man. I mean, I feel like we've had a couple encounters every every year, last couple of years. So love to see it. Yep. So yeah, hopefully we can take one home soon. I don't think that's probably going to happen again not in our lifetime. No, if they take something away, they're not going to give it back. Yep. So it works. So. Yeah. Oh, mackerel. Uh, I think Fallon texted me today. New Hampshire just passed 20 max mackerel. You're kidding me. Yeah, Massachusetts coming. But they're going to let the midwater boats go in there and kill 6 million pounds in a day. Yep. But yep. They're they move that back in. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. It's unbelievable. So. I love regulators that deliberately try to destroy our fisheries. That makes me really happy. Well, I know, I know. You, you, you have relationships not, to maintain. We're not going down that yeah. wormhole yeah. of government interventions right now. Yeah. <laughs> you guys have relationships to maintain. I don't. All right, Apple. They're evil. <laughs> all right, brother. Yeah, brother. Guess what, guys? It's about it's my bedtime. Bed. School yeah. day. So, Jay, thanks for coming, man. Thanks that was a super yeah, informative was an awesome podcast. conversation, Pleasure. man. I really appreciate your knowledge and sharing it with us. It's awesome stuff. I learned a lot. Really I can't wait to use these things. They look yeah. sick. Um, I'm probably going to put them on a reel this weekend and go cast them in the pond I know. and see what I was, they look like. Yeah. So, they swim purdy. Yeah. Once once my trinks comes in from Hudson's, I'll uh, whip that around the pond a little bit. I got to practice. I never, I never really got used to casting. Actually, when I was younger, I learned on a bait caster, but then I haven't used one since, so... We'll give it a shot. Is there a right hand retrieve or left hand retrieve? Got a left hand retrieve. My man. Yeah. <laughs> Had to be. Yeah. Otherwise you can't twitch it, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I played I played around with the right hand. One of my clients who came out in a podcast, a good friend of ours, Craig Simes, actually brought his from California just for our trip. And he was fishing baits like this. And he was doing he, his first couple of casts, he got a couple of stripers on him. Yeah. Nice ones too. And um I took a couple of casts with it. I, I couldn't do it with the right hand. And I actually got the left hand too for my jigging rod because that was one of the things when I was jigging the spoon that was a pain in the ass with the right hand retrieve because yeah. I'm a right handed jigger and then I hook up and then I'd want to switch over and nothing about it felt natural. So I got the left handed retrieve for that and I got two rods. I'm building a, a jig rod and I got the TFO rod as like a regular bait caster. So I'm probably going to get another Tranks and have two of them. For sure. Know, one for each. And also, why would you cast and then switch hands? It's not yeah, efficient. No, it's it's not sense. efficient. Taking those out of the, yep. So. Just because someone's done something for a long time doesn't mean it's correct. But it's crazy. All the freshwater bass fishermen I get come on my boat with my spinning gear. Oh, move I Move it over yeah, to the other, over side. To other side. I'm like, what are you doing? I can't. Do, it drives me nuts. Well, that's, <laughs> that's right. Well, that's just it. Like, my th- thought process was is I was like, I don't want to have to switch hands. I want to be able to move quick. And I want to be able to cast with one hand if I need to and, like, easily pitch something out with my right hand. And then why not have the crank on the left side? Because, you know, with a with spinning reel, it's always on the left side. You know, there's no there's no. Real but I difference. can't do, like, a regular conventional lefty. It's weird. I don't know why. Like, if I'm yeah, live bait you could, fishing. though. It would just probably just take a one outing and, you, and you'd be used to it. Yeah, that would feel weird, wouldn't it? Like, yeah. a, a lefty 50 wide? You know so why? strange. Because you're using your right hand on your lever drag the whole time. That's what it is, right? Yeah. You're constantly yeah, kicking you're your lever drag more. around. Yeah. Thumbing yeah. it, lever drag, thumbing it, lever drag. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's got to so, be what it is. I don't know. Yeah, that would make sense. Well, it'll be something to think about tonight before I go to bed because I'm about to pass out. So Yeah. yeah. All right, gentlemen. <laughs> thank you very much, Jay. Thank you for yeah, coming. Thanks, thank you, guys. Looking thank forward you. to having you again sometime. Absolutely. Right, pleasure.
Right, maybe after our trip down uh, up to New York, yeah, we'll do some steelhead. Maybe we'll bring the shit and uh, do it up there. Do it in the hotel room up there. <laughs> Absolutely, great man. Awesome. All right, thanks again, guys. Everybody, thank you for listening. Melson Merrimack, over and out.